soy, the final frontier. I'm Comrade Britain. These are the voyages of the USS Sex Trek, our ongoing mission to do cringe interviews with the most impossibly based individuals and to boldly go to talk about Star Trek porn. Soy Trek the podcast is here. One half vegan, one half queer. A hundred percent communist. Unless we have a less leftist guest. With Patrick and Britain talking, joking, farting and shitting all about Star Trek. Like our buttholes, the show is wrecked. Soy Trek, the podcast is here. So listen to Soy Trek right in your ears. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the bridge, everybody. My name is Comrade Britain, and today we are joined by a guest. Uh, our guest today is writer-director Mark Cushman, whose resume is just out of this world. Mark is probably best known in the Star Trek world for writing the three-volume tome of information these are the voyages tos season one season two and season three for which he won a saturn award he's also well known for writing the story for next generation episode 23 from season three Sarek. He has also written books on lost in space the moody blues and the voyage to the bottom of the sea and the definitive tome on gene roddenberry's life in star trek in the 1970s these are the voyages gene roddenberry in star trek in the 70s he uh, also um, did several feature films, including Teresa's Tattoo, In the Eyes of a Killer, and Midnight Confessions. He also showran the cult comedy series uh, Channel K, Bachelor Pad, and has been uh, has writing credits on Beyond Belief, Factor Fiction, and Diagnosis Murder, among others. But perhaps most interestingly, and the reason he's appeared on our radar. Mark has written over 500 adult films, including the Sex Trek series we've been recently reviewing. He's also the director on over 350 of those films. Wild. Hello, Mark. How are you doing today? Hello, Britain. How are you? And Patrick, hiding in the background. I think Patrick is covering himself in latex in case we start talking about the sex trek movies yeah he's in a latex cave he's uh he's pretty much a <laughs> giant human condom it's uh now i gotta i gotta say that song was really cheesy <laughs> and and it kind of sets the mood for what we're going to do because you said cringeworthy so i'll try to make your listeners cringe at least a few times uh, i i appreciate that we are we're here uh you know good art makes you feel things and i don't feel like as a podcast we can necessarily make people feel good about the world or anything but we can make them cringe so you know we're just we're just doing art over here i cringe every time i turn on the news f f me too but, me but, too we'll, we'll try to be more upbeat uh hopefully hopefully um so um gosh I don't even know where to begin with your incredible resume. There's so many things to talk about. So I'm just going to start at the very beginning. What our uh, podcast is about. How did you get into Star Trek? 
I was uh, working for a company in Los Angeles that made specials for the local TV stations, hour-long specials they could program into wherever they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy who ran the company asked me if I knew anything about Star Trek. I said, well, I love Star Trek. And at that point, uh, the first movie had come out, and Wrath of Khan, I think, was just weeks away. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was arranged for me to go to Paramount and interview Gene Roddenberry, which was the first of many interviews over the years. And um, uh, Gene introduced me to uh, Robert uh, Justman, his right-hand man on the original Star Trek and even the first season of Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met John D.F. Black, who was the associate producer on the first season of the original series, and the guy who wrote the words, Space, the Final Frontier. Mm-hmm. Gene wrote the rest of it, that opening narration, but John D.F. Black came up with those famous words. And uh, and they introduced me to D.C. Fontana, who your listeners probably know as Dorothy Fontana, mm-hmm. but she wrote under the word the initials DC because women weren't doing a lot of hour-long science fiction back then, if any, or even hour-long action adventure. So she used that pseudonym, semi-pseudonym, and it just kept going from there on, meeting uh, the, the rest of the people in the production company on the first show and uh, the actors and the guest stars and uh, on and on and on. And so we did this special, um, but uh, Paramount caught wind of it, and so they quickly did an hour-long special of their own with Leonard Nimoy hosting, mm-hmm. and then they, I believe, blocked the first one from getting sold out there, so it got uh, it got canceled, never got aired, so- and Gene Roddenberry was not happy about that. Um, you- and he said to me, you know, take all this stuff I've given you, and he gave me access to the show files, which was 40 boxes of scripts and treatments Holy and memos Lord. and ratings and production reports and budgets and you name it. And I said, why don't you do a book? And uh, it took me quite a few years to get the time free to do the book, and it turned into three books, and now it's six books, and here we are. Wild. Do you think that documentary still exists out there somewhere, or was it probably scrapped a long time ago? Oh, a long time ago. This this was in the uh, early 80s. Oh, wow. You, you never know. I mean, things show up on YouTube that never got aired and so forth. I don't, I don't even know if it was ever finished, you know, <laughs> fully edited or anything else, because when they found out Paramount was competing and was going to go to the channels they normally go to, uh, and in L.A., that was channel, either Channel 5 or Channel 13, because those were the two stations that showed the uh, Star Trek reruns. So um, they realized that they had been uh, uh, pushed out of the market. Interesting. So you actually knew Gene Roddenberry, which makes you the first and probably only guest we'll ever have who knew Gene. Um, tell us, uh, tell us a little about Gene. Um, like, uh, what are some things that folks might not know about him? <clears throat> he was a great guy, um, and you know, worshippers of Roddenberry and. Who used to call him God and Barry? <laughs> uh, you can't you can't say any wrong against him. Mm. But so many other people in the media and elsewhere uh, have kind of labeled him in negative ways over the years. And I'll just say I really liked Gene. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things to like about him was first of all he was a writer's producer because he was a writer producer. Mm-hmm. So when I pitched Sarak to him for Next Generation. Uh, you know, I just came in and, and uh, pitched a, started to pitch a couple stories, and, and I said, here's a story about 
greed. And he said, well, we don't have greed anymore. Okay, here's a story about blind ambition. Well, we don't have that anymore. Because he felt if we were going to live into the uh, the century of Star Trek, the next generation, we were going to have to get rid of these petty differences. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oops, okay, well, there's a couple stories I'm not going to get to pitch. And I had Sarak in my back pocket, and I said to him, um, what do you think would happen if a Vulcan was going through senility? And he said, what do you think would happen? And I told him the story that I had where Sarek is brought out of retirement to go renegotiate a treaty between two warring planets, and they only trust him because he had done the original treaty. Hmm. So he's been drafted, in a sense, to go back out there, but he's going through senility. And since Vulcans are telekinetic, uh, whatever he's feeling will... Uh, manifests itself in the people around him to where Riker is giving Picard a hard time and things of that nature. And and so from there, we just started discussing the story. And it was so much fun creating a story with Gene Roddenberry. Granted, I came in with the initial idea, mm-hmm. but, but just bouncing back and forth, writer to writer. And I've talked to many other writers, and they say it was the same experience. He really knew what he was doing. He really knew what he wanted Star Trek to be. Uh, he just gave great notes, great feedback. And uh, so you could have a terrific brainstorming session with Gene Roddenberry. But also, Gene never took your credits away. <laughs> uh, in that first series, since nobody had seen Star Trek, and nobody knew what these characters were until it got on the network, and by that point they had shot 16 episodes. So those first 16 episodes, he rewrote them, because only he knew what these characters were going to sound like and act like. And yet he didn't put his name on any of those scripts. He let the original writer keep the full credit, which meant get the full residuals from the episodes as well. And yet he would rewrite up to 70% of the dialogue, which is all documented. And in in the first book I did, um, These are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series, season one. Mm -hmm. Because you see the memos, you see the rewrites, you see the problems they had on the the set, production problems, budget problems, fights with NBC, the whole bit. And then you see the episode air, and you see the ratings from Nielsen for every episode, and letters that would come in, and so forth. So you go through the whole experience with each episode from the original concept all the way through to the broadcast and what followed. And uh, But he didn't take credit mm-hmm. for any of those. Uh, Corbinite Maneuver, I mean, that's 70% his dialogue. Uh, same thing with many of those first scripts. And so he was a very generous writer where anybody else would have put their name on there and taken half the uh, residuals. He wouldn't do that. So I really saw him as a straight-up guy. Um, he... He, w- he was cynical in some ways, but he was optimistic in many more ways. Uh, for instance, he didn't believe mankind would survive to the time of Star Trek's century. Hmm. He had been a World War II combat pilot. He had been a Los Angeles police officer, including a motorcycle cop. He had seen humanity at its absolute worst. And yet he felt that we had the ability to survive. And that's why it was so important to him to do Star Trek and show a positive future and a positive way to get to that future because he felt that that was the contribution he had to make. Uh, Where somebody like Rod Serling, on the other hand, would um, uh, have just a cynical view of mankind that we were doomed. So that was the difference between the two. Gene shared that cynicism, but he projected a positive course, which has really become the trademark of all the Star Trek series. Very true. 
Sounds like a really good guy to work for. Uh, do you think there's anything missing uh, after Gene Roddenberry passed? Like, uh, do you think there's anything missing with um, like Rick Berman or Alex Kurtzman as the uh, ostensible um, leaders of the Star Trek universe? I, I do, um, because Gene was a man of action. Mm-hmm. As I said, he had been a combat pilot, he'd been a cop. Uh, so he had a, enough of a swagger uh, that he understood action adventure. And I think a lot of the other producers that came after that, not all of them, but many of them, uh, are more intellectual. Mm-hmm. And Gene was intellectual too, but he balanced it with his manhood. He was also a very man's man mm-hmm. and uh, enjoyed sex and enjoyed womanizing and everything else <laughs> um, but but uh, a lot of the people after that were more so textbook type intellectuals and I think a lot of the Star Treks after are kind of boring uh, they've lost their edge uh, also Gene in his heyday at his peak when he was doing the original series understood the importance of conflict and you saw so much conflict between the different characters the regular characters on the show by the time he was doing next generation he was determined that he had to show human humankind as having advanced beyond those petty differences i spoke of a moment ago but that takes away a lot of the drama and and so it, it becomes in my mind dull uh, but at the same time, I think Gene would not be happy with the new movies, mm-hmm. new going back 10 years now, but I'm the ones with Chris Pine and J.J. And, and Abrams and so right, forth, right. because you, you've got fight sequences that come right out of comic books, mm-hmm. superhero stuff, where, where Spock and Khan are duking it out, and Khan throws Spock 20 feet, and he slams against a concrete wall, and he gets up and dusts himself up and comes back into the fight. No, every bone in his body would have been broken. Mm-hmm. And so I think Gene would really have a problem with his characters being treated in such a non-human way, like they are just action figures. Uh, so I, I respect him very much because he knew how to put the drama and the action uh, into a show. Uh, he'd put violence in there if it was making a statement about mm-hmm. violence. Uh, and he didn't mind violence if it was used uh, responsibly. And uh, and I just don't think um, a lot of producers now have that. True. And another thing I think that's very much missing uh, from post-Gene Trek is the latent horniness of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I saw a lot of it in Next Generation even after Gene left because uh, I was brought into pitch many times uh, mm-hmm. for that show and Voyager and Enterprise. Uh, and uh, they they definitely appreciated sexuality, but at the same time, uh, it was more like an intellectual approach to sexuality, where Gene, as I said, could be very primal right. in that respect. Right. And he understood that. He, I mean, he rewrote most of the dialogue on Richard Matheson's script uh, the enemy within, mm-hmm. where you have the intellectual Kirk and the primal Kirk. He understood the difference between those two dynamics in a human, but that inner conflict 
and he understood inner conflict. That's why he created Spock. That inner conflict is what makes people so interesting. But if you take somebody and they're just primal, and we all know people like that, mm-hmm. they're not as interesting. If you take somebody who's just intellectual, and we all know people like that, they're not interest- as interesting. It's that balance of somebody who's got that raging conflict inside of them between their physical side and their emotional side. Absolutely, and I think that that's what made Gene like uh, unapologetic. He was unapologetically human, uh, as compared to mm-hmm. I think the other showrunners. And like, part of me does wonder if he was unfairly maligned. Uh, you you get the uh, I hear the word womanizer brought up a lot around mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry. Which, yeah, he was he was with a lot of women. He liked sex. That's obvious. You know, that's well recorded. Um, but you know this day and age like uh you don't hear womanizer much anymore oftentimes if you find you know a man who's in a lot of relationships with women um and we we don't know exactly what his relationship with uh um Michelle Barrett was if it was condoned or not um his you know uh, external affairs part of me wonders mm-hmm. if like if he was around in this day and age we'd just call him something like ethically mo- non-monogamous or polyamorous or something like that mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Everything's been relabeled, and we have bigger words to go along with everything. Um, uh, I know, mm-hmm. I know what his relationship with uh, Major was. I know what his relationship with uh, Michelle was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what his relationship with both of them at the same time was. <laughs> uh, and and um, you know, he had menage a trois with them in his office, and he left the curtains open so everybody could see. Harlan Ellison told me about standing <laughs> outside uh, the Roddenberry Building, which was, wasn't called the Roddenberry Building back then, uh, but walking by and looking in through the blinds and seeing Gene and Michelle and Majel together in there, and uh, and Gene would have left those shades open because uh, he wasn't uh, ashamed of this. He felt it was very human. He felt mm-hmm. it was very natural. So, um, you know, you're right. He didn't apologize. He, he, he flaunted it. <laughs> uh, my my kind of guy. I, I absolutely love that. Um, so uh, Now, I'm not that kind of guy. I pulled the shades down. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> And I got my alter ego, which has done a lot of work in other parts of the industry, but uh, I'm, I'm a very private person. I pull the shades down, but um, but he did not. And uh, so it, it, it was out in the open, and he put uh, Majo up in a in the motel across the street from uh, Desilu, mm-hmm. and Justman knew she was there. He would call over there to see if Gene was there, if he couldn't find Gene. Uh, the people at NBC knew it was going on uh, when they saw the second pilot, or I'm sorry, the first pilot, and Majo was um, uh, playing the character of number one, mm-hmm. and they all kind of looked at each other and went, uh-oh. <laughs> they knew she was his mistress. He was still married at that time. Love it. So you mentioned uh, uh, Robert Justman several times, um, Gene Roddenberry's ostensible right-hand man, or number one, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about him and maybe some of the things that he did behind the scenes that we might not recognize as his contributions, but very much made oh Star God. Trek Star Trek. Oh, my God. Well, he was the, the opposite of Gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Justman was very moralistic, uh, married to the same woman for decades and decades uh, until his death and uh, never kept anybody in a motel across the street. (laughs) (laughs) Would never do anything in his office, uh, shades open or closed. Uh, But very funny. 
I, I mean, just a very sarcastic. Uh, he could have been a stand-up comic, uh, sar- sarcastic humor. And uh, but you know, he he would give notes on all the scripts, and you see this in, in my books. You mm-hmm. see the memos from him, which are my favorite part because they're so funny uh, with every story treatment every script here comes a memo from John B- Justman saying what what he likes and doesn't like about it and yet when he says I don't like this he does it in such a funny way you fall out of your chair <laughs> and uh, uh, he, but his job uh, was to go onto the set and realize the script so the writer producer Gene Roddenberry and then Gene L. Kuhn and then Fred Freeberger, and uh, they would work with the writers. They would pick the stories and develop the stories and uh, polish the scripts and so forth. And then they would hand it off to Bob Justman, who would have to go film it. And so some of the funniest memos from him that you see in these books is, is just, how are we going to afford to do this? And, uh, uh, you know, if you, you don't take some of these special effects out, I'm going to start sending you the bill from my psychologist. <laughs> I'm not joking. You know, you'd say I'm not joking with an exclamation point. Uh, so he had a really tough job trying to do uh, a half a science fiction movie every week uh, for under $200,000, which would be like about $2 million today. Uh, but two million today isn't a lot. Most hour-long network shows, especially a science fiction, cost more like about five, six million to do. So they they didn't have a ton of money, and they were also charting, uh, traveling across uncharted waters. They they had to figure out how to do these effects that nobody had ever done before, and there was no CGI. You had to do it all the old-fashioned way. Right. So Bob Bob's contribution to Star Trek was immense. And uh, on these books, uh, I believe on all three volumes, uh, certainly the first one, right at the top of the front cover, it says the story Gene Roddenberry and Robert Justman wanted you to, to know. And uh, they, they agreed to let us put that on the book uh, because they gave us all the memos. They gave us all the documents, and they gave us extensive interviews. Uh, and I said to them, these, these memos are going to show everybody how hard you worked and we want to put these memos in the in the books and uh, i forget if it was gene or bob but i seem to think it was bob because this sounds like his sense of humor he just looked at me and he said well what do you think we saved them for <laughs> it's a, i mean it's a it's a great question and like what do you save documents for except for like recorded history um there, there's a great memo in season three mm-hmm uh, when Bob was leaving the show halfway through the third season with a broken heart. Because at that point, he sent a memo out that said, we're trying to do half a science fiction movie each week on the budget of a radio show. Because mm. the budget had been cut so severely by Paramount and NBC at that point. Um, Lucy spent the money. These other guys, they, they cut it because they saw what happened to Lucy. She lost her studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want that to happen to them. Uh, but, he, but he wrote a, a goodbye memo to Gene. Uh, we print a couple of these in here. He actually wrote goodbye memos to Leonard and Bill Shatner and a few others. But he wrote one to Gene, and he said, Someday, we can only hope. Uh, that somebody's going to go through all these memos that you and I have wrote and saved and realize the job that we did. And and I printed that, I published that book in the third volume 
uh, because that's what we did. Interesting. So when writing uh, for this book and uh, researching and going through all these memos, what was the most surprising thing that you found out about Star Trek or Gene or the whole process? Well, first of all, that almost every episode was a battle. Hmm. Uh, they, they had to fight NBC tooth and nail on so many of the subject matters they wanted to do. Uh, the censors uh, trying to take things out of the scripts, and, uh, and they would have to take them out. But Gene would put up a good fight, and every now and then he, he would he would win, like uh, the City on the Edge of Forever, which Harlan wrote, um, <laughs> although Gene rewrote it, and Gene Kuhn rewrote it, and Dorothy Fontana rewrote it. Um, because Harlan kind of wrote it like an Outer Limits. Um, but So they had to make it Star Trek. Mm-hmm. But the last line in the episode after Kirk has to let Edith Keeler die, and they step back through the time portal, and he opens his communicator to tell the Enterprise to beam them up. Uh, he opens it up, and Scotty answers or something up there, and, and he says, instead of saying, beam me up, beam, beam us up, he says, Scotty, get uh, get us the hell out of here. And uh, NBC said, you can't say hell on our network. <laughs> and Gene fought it tooth and nail. Uh, there's memos in there you know, where, where he would say, what else could he possibly say? He just let the woman he loved die. Mm-hmm. Is he going to say heck? Get us the <laughs> heck out of here? And the reply from the censor at NBC is, was... Um, what the hell? Go ahead and say it. That's that's amazing. That's uh... and 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 there's an early episode to further answer your question. Mm-hmm. Um, Dagger the mine, which yeah. maybe was the ninth or tenth episode filmed in the first season. Again, heavily rewritten by Gene. Um, Simon Van Gelder uh, escapes from a penal colony, but he's been subject to the neural neutralizer, and so his memories are repressed. Kirk's down there, and he's in danger, and he doesn't know it yet. On the Enterprise, Spock and McCoy are trying to find out what what is locked in Simon Van Gelder's mind. And so they decide to hypnotize him. And in the early draft script that went to the network, uh, McCoy uses a watch, mm-hmm. the old-fashioned way. And NBC wrote back and said, you can't hypnotize people on our network. <laughs> because it may hypnotize the people watching our network. And, and Gene went back to them and said, this is a really important scene. This is where they're going to find out what was happening down there and that Kirk is in mortal danger. And, and you know, we got to keep it in. And they said, well, you can't do that. And so Gene came up with the Vulcan mind meld so that Spock could access uh, Van Gelder's memories and we didn't have to have a watch going back and forth, which might hypnotize the audience members. And so a lot of the things that happened in Star Trek came about to get around the censors. Interesting. So the, the censors in the studio in this case were the mother of invention. Yeah. I mean, the Vulcan mind melt is iconic mm-hmm. now. And that wouldn't have ever even happened if it wasn't for NBC refusing to let McCoy hypnotize Simon Van Gelder. And there's many, many stories like that in these books where you find out that a lot of these devices uh, came about that way. Well, even the transporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the pilot, the first pilot, uh, it was going to cost too much to have the ship land 
on the planet just for us to be able to see that. So Gene came up with the idea of the teleporter, huh? <clears throat> and then he realized that not only does that save money, but it could get us into the stories much quicker. And every episode, they beam down to the planet, and boom, they're in trouble. And you don't have to go through several minutes of the ship getting ready to land, and then landing, and then coming out of the ship, and so forth. So it was, they came up with that to save money, but it ended up being a great device to get us into the story quickly. Right, and that, that's and a great way to and a great way to split Kirk into two, good mm-hmm. or bad, and that couldn't have happened without the teleporter. Right, I mean, just uh, in general, like like both of those examples, both the mind meld and the transporter, um, they're just classic plot devices at this point. Like, uh, just for instance, like your episode of TNG, Sarek, uh, the resolution is basically a mind meld between Picard and Sarek. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's tons of episodes with mind melds, tons of episodes with transporter malfunctions. The transporter is down, which you touch on in uh, several of the Sex Trek films. Like, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, just something that they they had to do uh, in order to bypass some kind of problem. Just ended up being a deep part of the lore and the history of Star Trek, and that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, just in the in the first series, uh, the Vulcan uh, Spock does a mind melt on the Horta, mm-hmm. and that's how we find out it's not just a monster killing for the sake of killing; it's a mother protecting its eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Inspector of the Gun, one of my favorite third season episodes, Spock does a mind meld on uh, on uh, the landing party, mm-hmm. so that they can believe that the bullets aren't real; they're not real. But if you believe they're real, they'll kill you anyway. Hmm. You'll have a heart attack because you think you just got shot. Uh, so he had to do the mind meld to say these are specters. These are an illusion. They're not real bullets. Uh, they're, they're, they're planning on executing us by using our own fear. Hmm. And so we have to see these as things that can't harm us. So the mind meld just became, well, and it was the bridge between uh, Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three, hmm. uh, with him planting that thing into McCoy's uh, memory. Uh, so it, it, it just became such an important device in Star Trek, but it came about to get around the censorship issues. Interesting. So uh, you kind of bring up an interesting point that just made me kind of think about something. So. In old Star Trek, uh, like you mentioned with Spock and the Horda, um, you know, we can go to uh, Kirk and the Gorn captain. There's a lot of um, trying uh, to find solutions that are not violence. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. I feel like at least after Rick Berman took over, and especially with Alex Kurtzman's Trek, uh, there's a lot more violence involved and violence implicit in Star Trek now. Do you feel like mm. Star Trek has become too reactionary? I think the movies mm-hmm. have. Um, you know, trying to think back to the uh, the spinoff series, uh, I saw a lot of Next Generation uh, because I was going in and pitching and watching it, and uh, I, I saw the pilot for Voyager before anyone out there did because uh, I was invited to a screening of it so I could come in and pitch for that show and so forth. I, I saw a few episodes of, the, of Enterprise and a few episodes of Deep Space Nine um, and uh, I don't remember any of them being violent for the sake of violence. Uh, if anything, I felt that the action-adventure elements were a little too subdued mm-hmm. in those shows. 
uh, until the Borg came along, right? And, and that was the best shot in the arm Next Generation ever got, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, by applause to whoever came up with it. Uh, but uh, the movies, absolutely. As I said earlier, I, I think the, the movies, uh, and I'm not talking about the ones that were done back in the day when mm-hmm. Gene was uh, produced the first one and, and was a uh, executive consultant on the others, but uh, but the later batch. Um, I feel that they uh, they're just they're more superhero uh, action type uh, stories than uh, than what Star Trek was. Out of all the the Star Trek movies that were done during Gene life, Gene's life, mm-hmm. I think the best one is the first one, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, the one that's the most fun is Wrath of Khan and uh, Voyage Home. Yes, and, and and so I mean, Wrath of Khan is probably the best movie in almost all regards of any of them, but I still find I prefer the first one because it's more true to Star Trek, mm-hmm. uh, what Star Trek was originally, um, and uh, this may sound like um, I'm contradicting myself uh, because I understand the first movie lacked action. And, uh, and Star Trek was an action-adventure show. So it was missing the action elements that the TV show had. Mm-hmm. But there were episodes of the original TV show that were very much like Star Trek, the motion picture, that didn't have any fist fights or Kirk kissing green aliens <laughs> uh, or things of that nature. There were, there were bottle shows that took place entirely aboard the Enterprise, and they were some of the best episodes mm-hmm. without any violence, or anything else. I'm thinking of, of episodes like Charlie X mm-hmm. and um, um, the Tholian Web yeah. and uh, um, the Doomsday Machine. Well, that had action out in space, mm-hmm. fighting the Doomsday Machine, but not not between the humans. Uh, the Immunity Syndrome is another terrific episode that has no action adventure in it at all. Uh, and it's very much like Star Trek, the motion picture in that respect. And so is an episode called The Changeling, uh, which you could even say the motion picture borrowed part of the story from The Changeling. So, uh, so you know, the series ha- would alternate between action and adventure stories and more intellectual ones. And I think uh, the first motion picture tapped right into that beautifully and was supposed to be. Uh, a two-hour TV movie that was going to premiere the new series, Phase Two, mm-hmm. uh, and it would, I think it would have played better on television than it did on the big screen. But um, but the later series uh, were—it just seemed like almost every episode until the board came along were more intellect intellectual-oriented. And uh, I know there were some fight sequences; there were a few that would do it, but most of them seem to be talking heads for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was just lacking the excitement and the conflict that was that was such an important part of the original series, the conflict between the characters. Right, right. And um, yeah, uh, like Gene uh, Roddenberry famously uh, very much disagreed with the direction Wrath of Khan was taking under uh, Harv Bennett oh, yeah. and Nicholas Meyer. Which uh, I mean, I know it's a very celebrated film, but you know, it's 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 good. Uh, that's for certain. Uh, is it Star Trek necessarily? Does it like fit into Gene's vision? I think that's another completely separate conversation. 
Yeah, um, I mean, but there are there are episodes of the original series that you could say Rathacon is very very much like. Oh, even Space and, Seed, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had episodes like Day of the Dove, where the Klingons and and the and the Enterprise crew were fighting with swords mm-hmm. on the Enterprise and stuff like that. So Star Trek was not opposed to, or even Arena, which you mentioned a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Star Trek was not opposed to doing uh, action shows that kids could really get into. But there was still something about those, like with Arena at the end. No, I will not kill him. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he thought we were invading his space. Maybe he was felt he was defending himself. That, that's Gene making those wonderful statements about uh, monsters are not just monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're trying to kill you, there's probably a reason because you're killing their eggs or you're invading their space. Uh, or, or, or they're just misunderstanding you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a scene that was cut out of um, Spectre of the Gun, that one I mentioned earlier from mm-hmm. the third season, where the Melkotians, I believe they were, uh, said, no, stay away, do not approach our planet. But Kirk had orders to try to get negotiations open with them, so he went ahead anyway, and that's why they put him back in that western town out of Kirk's memory to serve as his death sentence, mm-hmm. his own memories. Well, the reason they did that is because they feared mankind. And the scene that we did, never saw uh, was the uh, uh, that uh, they had been picking up television signals from Earth oh. that had been transmitted 300 years earlier. And so they're seeing all the violence. Imagine, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're 200 and something years in the future. And the Enterprise arrives at your planet, Britain, but you're watching TV and the signals you are getting from Earth are from right now. You know, would you want that ship coming anywhere near you? <laughs> I, would, I would simply blow it out of the sky. Yes, and, and, but the Melkotians weren't violent, so they didn't blow it out of the sky. They, uh, they tried to make it stop. They put a buoy in front of it saying, go away. And the Enterprise had to destroy the buoy and come forward anyway. And so that's when they took the landing party and said, you will be punished by your own history. And uh, which means we're not going to kill you, but you'll kill yourselves. And that's why Spock had to use the mind meld to keep that from happening. Um, Well, NBC didn't want that scene to be part of the script because that scene would be saying that the stuff NBC was broadcasting was violent. Wild. It was the type of stuff that would make the Melkotians not want to have anything to do with Earthlings. So, so they said, you can't put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> so we missed a great setup to the whole story. Indeed. So uh, you also mentioned John D.F. Black, who uh, I believe wrote the foreword to uh, your book, These Are the Voyages. Mm-hmm. Um why don't you tell us a little about uh, John D.F. Black and Mary Black and uh, how they've worked into your career. It, it was really interesting um, when I interviewed them and actually became friends with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started having dinner together, and then I started taking them to some of the conventions I attended because my publisher would get a booth. And I invited John and Mary to join me at one time because it was at in LA mm-hmm. um, at the convention center so I picked them up and drove them out there and they spent the day at the booth um, and 
they were in such awe. I, I also got uh, got him to go on Access Hollywood with me, nice. and uh, CBS had us come down and uh, videotaped an interview, which they put on uh, one of the box sets uh, as a special feature and so forth. But John hadn't had anything to do with Star Trek in 40 years. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so he didn't know what it had become. He was, you know, in his 80s. Uh, he, he just, I mean, he knew it was popular. Mm-hmm. He knew it was still around. But, but he had never been to a convention. He had never done any of that kind of stuff. So when they went to that convention, uh, with me, and John was in a wheelchair at that point. It was the last year or so of his life, and people were coming up and thanking him and shaking his hand and thanking him for writing the Menagerie, mm-hmm. where Christopher Pike is in a wheelchair. And you'll maybe thinking, well, no, Gene wrote that. Uh, well, if you read my book, you'll find out John wrote the first draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people who had read my books knew that John was the guy who actually came up with that the first draft of that story gene rewrote it so completely uh and and because it was using footage of the from the pilot that gene had written Mm -hmm. that he ended up getting the writing credit on that it was probably one of the rare times that he took a credit that perhaps he should have shared um but I, i don't know of any other instance where that happened um and and so they're thanking john for that and they're thanking him for the naked time which he wrote uh, and for coming up with the line Space the Final Frontier, which they had found out from reading my book and so forth. And he had tears in his eyes. I, I mean, he oh. just had no idea that these people would even know who he was. And, uh, and so it just it meant so much to him. And Mary told me after John passed away, and I, I gave the eulogy at his funeral, uh, she told me, she said, you helped John live a couple more years she said uh, it's hard for me to say that because I'm not patting myself on the back by any means I'm just I'm just trying to express to you uh, let you understand what what she was saying and what what she meant by that was she was saying because that gave him purpose again he he was just sitting in front of the TV he wasn't doing anything he wasn't writing uh, he didn't realize that some of the stuff he had written had lived on to such a degree and that there was a generation of young people out there who were appreciating it and all that kind of stuff. And by featuring us in your books and, and dragging us, kicking and screaming to <laughs> to a couple of these things, I, I mean, they didn't, I, I, don't, I, I don't think they really wanted to go to the convention, but I said, well, come on, you have a good time. And, oh, okay. And, uh, but when, when we were driving home, I mean, they they were just like, that meant so much to us. And uh, I had no idea how much it meant to them until Mary said that to me, which I was stunned when she said that to me. So it, was, it wasn't really me. She, she said, you, you helped him live a couple of years. No, it's the fans of Star Trek mm-hmm. helped him live a couple more years. I was just the conduit. Uh, it was meeting those people and, and having them tell him how much what he had done meant to them that just gave him such a sense of accomplishment in those last couple of years of his life. Uh, the fans did that. So Mary, Mary said, you, Mark, but I'm passing it on to everybody that greeted him that day at the L.A. Convention Center and, uh, and started writing him letters and things of that nature that just meant so much to the guy. 
Gosh. Well, thank you so much. That is by far the sweetest and nicest thing that's ever been said on this podcast. So, I, I've never told that story before. You well, know, I, I never know what's going to fall out of my mouth. Well, I, you're, you're, we appreciate you're, this it. This is the only place I, I, the only place I've ever told that story. Oh well, thank you so much. Well, I think uh, now's probably a good time to uh, get into the elephant in the room. So, mm-hmm. you wrote all of the sex trek pictures which are the star trek porn parodies there's a couple other ones but this is like the main series this is the first series uh in my opinion this is the first uh star trek porn parody ever created although there's uh there was one that predated it by a few years called starship intercourse that is very much not like star trek doesn't have the uniforms Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's been a few that have been done since I retired from that industry. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 other than that, I did uh, the first uh, how many? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm not sure. I'll say three. We did three on the first series, two mm-hmm. on Next Generation. So that's five. Mm-hmm. And then I directed and wrote four after that. So that's nine. nine. Golly. Uh, and, and then years later, um, a couple other companies did some after mm-hmm. I had stepped away. Um, it was Gene Roddenberry who gave me the idea to do that. <laughs> you know, he, he, I don't even know how it came up. Mm-hmm. He said to me, um, uh, he, he, he said, one day, one day there's gonna be a adult movie takeoff mm-hmm. Uh, of of Star Trek, and and he said, and I can't wait to see it. <laughs> and it was about a week later uh, that I got called in for a uh, meeting at a company called Moonlight Entertainment, mm-hmm. which did adult movies, but with people from mainstream writers and directors, and that's why they called themselves Moonlight Entertainment because we were moonlighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they wanted me to do a script, and I said. Uh, Hey, you want to do a Star Trek parody? And they said, "We love Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it." And uh, and that became um, uh, the first one that I did. Wild. So, how did you get into moonlighting in the adult industry in the first place? I had done a R-rated uh, horror film, splatter film, we called them, uh, which the working title, my title, was Lovers Slain. Uh, that got changed, <laughs> but but. Um, uh, and um, and the guy who was producing it uh, um, called me up after I'd written it and d- was done with the job and been paid and all that. He calls me up and says, uh, I'm having trouble with completion money, which is a common thing in this industry where you've you got your production money, but then you go a little over budget, so you need to raise more money for post-production and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, would you write a couple adult movies for me really quick? And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, I used to do that. I produced a bunch of films for Pussycat Theaters back in the days, John Holmes and so forth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay, well, send me a script so I can see the formatting that you want, and uh, and, and I'll do it. And he wanted uh, more than 30 pages. I think it was like 35, 40 pages <laughs> uh, uh, of a story-driven, couples-friendly adult movie with... Um, uh, with five uh, sex scenes in there, we call them commercial breaks. <laughs> Except the story needs to lead into the commercial, you know, and then lead out of the commercial back into the story. And so I did one called The Sheets of San Francisco, which was a par- uh, police cop show TV series parody. Uh, and um, another one called Nudes at 11, which was a takeoff on an evening news broadcast uh, that was 
featuring a lot of sex-oriented sto- stories, which they always do in L.A. during mm-hmm. Sweeps Month. It was like, on Channel 7 at midnight, the new bikinis are coming out, you know, whatever, <laughs> to try to get people to watch. And, um, and so I did these two scripts for them, and uh, they paid $1,500 each, and this was mm-hmm. back in the mid-'80s, so that yeah. wasn't bad bad payday mm-hmm. it took me about a day and a half to do i probably did both of them in three days and turned them in and he wrote me a check for three grand said thank you very much and i said thank you very much and went home and next thing i know the phone's ringing and and it's him wanting a couple more scripts and then the phone rings and it's the guy who directed uh those first couple movies for him saying man those were the easiest uh, adult movies i ever directed the scripts were just so good everybody was laughing and falling on the floor but they were easy to shoot you know how to you know how to write to budget you know how to you don't put in people we don't have you don't put in sets we don't have you just put in what we tell you you we have and and you made it just so easy to shoot those things would you write a couple for me and uh and so it just kept happening or more and more people kept calling and wanting scripts my number just kept getting passed around and next thing you know i was doing uh just doing like one a week you know like 50 a year uh but it would only take you know so i'd get a job and it would take me a day or two Mm -hmm. and then i could spend the rest of the week writing the great american screenplay (laughs) you know yeah my bill my bills were paid and i could just go from there so it turned into a really great gig i ended up working everywhere uh doing uh um, music videos commercials infomercials religious programming children's programming i've done just soap operas i've done you know primetime tv comedy drama late night tv everything you can imagine um but the adult stuff was probably the most fun because they you wrote what you felt like writing they'd bring me in and say what do you feel like doing uh, do you want to do a drama? You want to do a comedy? And I say, sure, I'll, I'll do a, a takeoff on uh, called When Larry Ate Sally. Okay, yeah, <laughs> cool, funny. Go, go do it. And I said, okay, so how big is your cast? What are your sets? Um, and well, we got a great house, and it's got a swimming pool with a waterfall, and it's got this, it's got that. Okay, great. Well, we're on a stage, uh, but it's got a terrific office set and a bar set and a police jail set and all that kind of stuff. I say, okay, and mm-hmm. I would go home kind of like with Legos. You just start building something out of the building blocks and uh, and and do these scripts. But I could, I could write whatever I wanted. Uh, there are rules, just like there are in TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I was writing for a show called Diagnosis Murder, which starred Dick Van Dyke. And I remember we sent the script in and CBS came back with notes from broadcast standards, the censors. And there was a scene where Dick Van Dyke was kissing this woman that he was kind of sweet on. Mm-hmm. And the note was no tongues. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like Dick Van Dyke's going to slip her a tongue. Yeah. Right, sure. <laughs> well, the same thing in adult movies. You you get notes from the Dutch Media uh, Association mm-hmm. uh, or media group, and you know who regulates all the cable broadcasts in Europe. Uh, and the toughest customers in Europe are the Germans. Very very <laughs> restrictive about what they'll allow in adult movie really? on Playboy Channel. That's surprising. And and it's like you can't do that over here, and you can't do this and so you got a whole list of things that words you can't use and things you can't do and and you got to understand budget and you got to understand all that and and uh, I know all that 
Mm-hmm. So I was able to give them what they wanted. And when you give the man what he wants, the man keeps coming back with more money for you. Mm-hmm. And in that industry, a lot of times it was cash. And so that's how I became cash market. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, taking a lot of things into consideration for writing adult films, such as you know length, uh, pacing, um, uh, sets, things like that. I was wondering, is there a fundamental difference between writing an adult film and writing a teleplay? No, it is a teleplay um, or a screenplay. Um, uh, but all the adult movies I did were for for broadcast, either on Playboy, Penthouse, Adam and Eve, Spice, uh, and then of course over in Europe, mm-hmm. um, where I still get royalty checks from Europe all the time. Wow. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and uh, but so you're writing them um, to a certain length. Uh, so if it's a 70 minute movie, which is about par, uh, they may want. 30, 35 minutes of dialogue and the rest of the screen time is taken up by romantic situations. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so every you write five pages of dialogue and you go into a romantic situation. Just, just like writing an action movie. You'll write 10 pages of dialogue and then you'll have an action sequence. Mm-hmm. And then 10 more pages of dialogue and then another action sequence. A musical. 10 pages of dialogue and then somebody's going to sing. <laughs> 10 more pages and then somebody's going to sing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just it's the same thing for a writer. You know what the genre is. You, you know that you're writing an action script, a musical, a comedy. Uh, it, comedy is it's, it's a straight line and then a, then a setup line and then a punchline. Mm-hmm. And then a straight line, a setup line, and a punchline. Uh, but, the, but the jokes have to also help the story advance forward. So it's, you know, you just, you know who the audience is. You know what the audience wants to see mm-hmm. and you give it to them. So it's just words on paper. I mean, and ideas, uh, obviously, and knowing the the structure and and who the audience is going to be, what the budget's going to be, mm-hmm. and putting it down. Uh, so for me, it didn't feel dirty at all when I was doing it because I was just writing pages. Um, and the first time I visited a, a an a adult movie set. And I can say porn set, but it's not really porn. If you look up the definition of porn, it's illegal, mm-hmm. it's illicit, it's immoral. There's nothing immoral about people getting naked and having sex. No. Gene Roddenberry would be the first one to tell you that. <laughs> humans, if you don't get naked and have sex, you're missing out on a big part of humanity mm-hmm. and, and, and life, you know? Um, and we film everything else. We film people slipping on banana pills. We film people shooting each other. We film people brawling in a bar, mm-hmm. uh, and we and we call that entertainment. Uh, you know, so why not film sex? You know, and right. call it entertainment. But give it substance. Give it a purpose. Give it a you know, have a message, a theme, which Gene was always so insistent on in every episode of Star Trek. Uh, when I pitched Sarak, it said, "I like that idea." Mm-hmm. What's the theme? What are you trying to say? Well, a writer needs to have a statement. Not all writers seem to know that, but but whatever you're writing, whether it's a children's show, an adult show, or something in between, or even a religious show, you, you, you've got to have a message you're trying to convey. Uh, and I understand that, and I do that. And 
and, and they don't and the producers don't even know what you're doing all they know is this is good this works mm-hmm. we don't know how he made this cake but this is a g- pretty good cake <laughs> it's 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 tasty but it's it's it's, it's not falling apart mm-hmm. it's 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 filling but it's not over feeling gee what a great cook let's get yeah. him back to make another cake so if you know how to do it you can work all the time once you break in once you break in and people start seeing what you do mm-hmm. uh, the work just keeps coming so it's so that's what it is it's it's it's, uh, it's just knowing what you're doing uh, and not being a prude about it uh, I you know I I don't care if it's rated G PG or X if as long as I can do something good well adult movies they would say what do you feel like doing this week I feel like doing I just saw this movie and I went Okay, uh, I'd give the title. You know, mm-hmm. I'd say a nightmare on on Porn Street, yep. or Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. or Sex Trek: The Next Penetration, mm-hmm. or 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 Pernokio. And then Pernokio <laughs> is a little he's, he's a little puppet who mm-hmm. wants to grow up to be a real boy, mm-hmm. just like in the real movie and story. Except this guy, it's not his nose that grows big when he lies. It's something <laughs> else. And I had a scene where this uh, this uh, woman was straddling Pornocchio and she's looking down at him and she's saying, lie to me, you son of a bitch, lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, who can't have fun doing that for a living? Very good question. So I, I notice uh, in your writing of at least the Sex Trek films, all of them are like deeply funny and just full of jokes. Um, did you ever really see yourself becoming a comedy writer, or is it something you just settled into because of the material? I'm just a writer, and and it's like I was saying before. Understand uh, the, the the genre that you're writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can write action scenes. I can write romantic scenes. I can write funny scenes. Uh, if you're a good writer, um, you you uh, comedy is irony. Mm-hmm. So you find the irony. And we would all be much better off if we could find the irony in life right now. Don't you wish all these hypocritical politicians had a sense of irony? You <laughs> see how how silly they are, and how every time they blame the other side for something, they're guilty of doing it even worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to have some self reflection. Uh, we we have to find ourselves funny. You have to be able to laugh when you screw up. Mm-hmm. And realize, boy, I just, boy, that was pretty dumb, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to laugh at yourself. It's not just laughing at others. It's laughing at the human condition and uh, and just have a sense of what's funny. Uh, so I think I'm equally good in comedy and drama, but I I prefer comedy most of the time. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I would do a few comedies, I would kind of start getting an itch to do a serious thing, something dark. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, G-rated stuff. I'd get the itch to do something X-rated, and vice versa. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, you you kind of bring up like comedy and its uh, relation to irony and like politics. And I noticed in the Sex Trek films, mm-hmm. um, they actually have like surprisingly good politics in that they like address systems rather than like individual actors or anything like that. And uh, in as much mm-hmm. the United Federation of Planets in the films is replaced with a capitalist bent United Federation of Earth Corporations. <laughs> Uh, was this more yeah. of a commentary on how you see the uh, the Federation itself or more of a larger commentary yes. on America? Both, hmm. because the Federation was based on America. Mm-hmm. I mean, Starship Enterprise was based on 
aircraft carrier enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Starfleet was based on the U.S. Navy, which was based on the British Navy during their imperialistic years. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'd see episodes where they're out there trying to negotiate a minimal right, uh, minimal, what am I trying to say? Mineral, mineral rights mm -hmm. from some planet. Uh, and, and so, yes, they're kind of military, they're combination military and science, but they're trying to set up a treaty for the Federation so we can come dig up the uh, lithium uh, uh, mining mining operation in that planet. Uh, everything that we do right now on Earth. So Gene Roddenberry, having been in the military, kind of set Star Trek up that way mm -hmm. and kind of saw it as Captain Cook selling the Pacific and discovering Hawaii. No, here's Captain Kirk selling outer space and discovering the planet Hawaii mm -hmm. and all it has to give to us. And so uh, it wasn't a put down because I'm a capitalistic person. I believe in capitalism mm -hmm. and I'm a flag saluting American. I believe in America. I think it's the greatest country on earth. Always has been. Uh, although I think all the people who don't believe that should go live somewhere else. <laughs> And I'll hold the door open for them and Fair. kick them in the ass on their way out. Yes. You know, and that that's the thing that bugs me is pe seeing people who I saw a poll the other day and it said uh, uh, 20 years ago, 70% uh, of the people polled in America said America was a great country. And now 70% mm -hmm. say it isn't. Okay, go away. I mean, I... I and then I, we'll have a great country again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I personally um, might uh, kind of err towards that 70% side, but at the same time, I do realize that America is a great country because I can say it's not a great country. Yes. Yeah. That's the thing. You, you go somewhere else and try to say that and see what happens to you. I mean, you can go say it in England, mm -hmm. and, and you can go to France and say it. Uh, most Western countries, you can go and say it in. Mm -hmm. But go to China and say something that's anti-government and see what happens to you. Go to Russia. Go to the Middle East and say something like that, and they'll chop your hand off. Yeah. Uh, you know? If, uh, which hand do you use to feed that mouth? <laughs> I can pick up a fork with my right hand. Okay, we're cutting off the right hand because we don't like what just came out of that mouth. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's, why do you think everybody wants to come to America? You know? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. We can be better, and we have to be self-critical. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be self-critical. Uh, but that's how you get better. I'm self-critical with everything I write, mm -hmm. and that's how I do a rewrite. You know, I can make this better. Uh, but at the same time, I appreciate the fact that um, I've been given the opportunity to write. And so that's why I guess I'm saying, and you just said it so well uh, about America, is, okay, make it better. Mm -hmm. But just appreciate that you're in a place where you have the opportunity to do that, where you actually get to vote mm -hmm. for your leaders and and so forth. So that that's why I think it's, it's, it's the greatest country out there. It's the most giving country out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like the Federation to come full circle to what you said a moment ago. It, you know, we give we give more foreign aid than anybody. We've given one hundred and fifty billion dollars to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And out of all of our NATO allies, the second biggest donator to Ukraine is Great Britain that's given Ukraine $3 billion. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and we've we've given... 150 from us, three from them, and they're living in that hemisphere. We aren't. Mm-hmm. They're directly you know? affected by it with their natural gas and stuff like that, whereas we aren't. I mean, our interests are, but mm-hmm. you know, we're not directly paying more for like heating oil like uh, like England yeah. is right now because of it. So. Yeah, so so you should thank America and and uh, and you should thank the Federation because the <laughs> Federation's out there looking to make a buck too, <laughs> right. and they're looking to get this planet to join the Federation because it's close to the Klingon border, mm-hmm. and we want to have a base there just like the U.S. wants to have a base in Guam and the Philippines, so we want to have these bases out there. So yeah, we're trying to get something out of it too. Mm-hmm. And 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 the Federation wants to arrange to open up McDonald's franchises on all these planets too. So uh, you know we're making we're making money, but at the same time uh, we're giving a lot. And if you look at the history of the planet, uh, usually countries don't give to other countries; they just take. Mm-hmm. They strip they strip mine and leave it barren. And that's what China is doing right now in Africa and South America and the Middle East. And that's what Russia is going to do in Ukraine. I mean, they're not looking to make a better Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Ukraine Ukraine had a lot to offer in minerals and farmland and everything else. It's too cold to grow a lot of stuff in Russia. Mm -hmm. But but on the Western front of Russia is, is the best place. So let's get Ukraine. Uh, so they're not looking to uh, do Ukraine any any favors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Federation, you know, was kind of like, well, we're taking care of ourselves, but we're taking care of you too. Well, that's, that's the same way America is. Uh, and so when I did that line and that parody, I was seeing what America was mm-hmm. and seeing how Star Trek kind of mimicked that in what the Federation was. And so I came up with that United Corporations of Earth or whatever it was, and uh, but it wasn't a put down mm-hmm. because I understand that it's 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 a good system. Yeah. It works for them. It works for us. Um, yeah, and it's uh, you know ultimately with both the Federation and the United States government, they are constantly uh, walking the tightrope between benevolence and might because you know yes. we couldn't provide other countries without our might. You know, yeah. or without the, the the military bases on what like a uh, hundred and twenty countries throughout the world, like uh, yeah. you know, it's our it's our supply chain from which we do benevolent things, but we also have historically done some pretty uh, pretty awful things as well. But you know, well, that was beautifully stated. And and see now, if you were pitching to Gene Roddenberry right now, you, you would say that's the theme. Walking the tightrope between, how'd you say it? Uh, between benevolence and might. Yes. He would say, there's a theme for a Star Trek episode right there. Mm-hmm. Go write it. You know, uh, that, that's how his mind worked. And that's why Star Trek, especially the ones he produced and wrote, um, stand out because they were about something. When I was doing these books, mm-hmm. uh, the first three on the original series, uh, my son, who was probably was 15 at that time, uh, came up to my office. Um, I had a room in the house that was an office, mm-hmm. and and there was a Dutch door there, uh, so to keep the the dogs from coming in and interrupting my work and everything. But the top half could be open, so he came in. He was standing there at that Dutch door, and he he looks and he says, "Hey, Dad." And I said, "What?" And he says, 
every night uh, from uh, from 10 to 11, uh, they're, they're showing uh, Next Generation, which I had written for at that point, and, he's, uh, and five nights a week. And then from 11 to 12, they show the original show. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, he says, I've been watching them. And I said, "Yeah, what do you th- what do you think of the original show?" Because he knew I was writing these books about it. I, I said, "What do you think of that original show?" And I thought he was going to come back and say, "Oh, the special effects are cheesy, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The the uniforms aren't as good, or something." And uh, and he says, "I I like it mm-hmm. when it's over. It, it's it's way better than the crappy one you wrote for." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Why why are you saying that, Stevie?" And he, and he says. Well, uh, it, because they show the original one second, and and so that's the last thing I watch, and mm. then I turn out the lights. And he said, and I find myself lying there thinking about it. Well, those are the themes that Gene Roddenberry put into each episode, that you, you lie there and you're thinking about the Horda, or you're thinking about the Gorn, mm-hmm. or you're thinking about, and not just the fact that it's a, a lizard that's trying to kill Kirk, but the fact that it felt intruded upon, mm-hmm. you know, it thought we were invading its space and stuff like that. And so he'll, he would lie there and be thinking about these themes or the enemy within, mm-hmm. where you find out that the, the good Kirk, the intellectual Kirk, can't make command decisions without the primal Kirk. And he has to bring the primal Kirk back into his body or because he's losing, losing the power to command. Because you need that primal ambition. Mm-hmm to be able to make the tough decisions. And and so Stevie would be lying awake thinking about that. So, you know, that it's those themes mm-hmm. that make that show continue. Uh, and, and in the same way, make Twilight Zone reruns still fun to watch during marathons and so forth. Because even though it's darker and more uh, cynical, it's still, there's a, there's a message in each episode. Well, I try to put a message in every Cash Markman movie, too. Nice. And uh, for the listeners who don't know, uh, Cash Markman was your uh, nom de plume for uh, your adult stuff, as well as, um, what else you have, uh, Penny Nichols? Um, yeah, when I worked for Penthouse, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, as a writer and a director, they, uh, they said, well, I'd done quite a few for them at that point, but they mm-hmm. said, you know, we we don't have enough women writers and directors and we're penthouse you know we're supposed to be the woman's adult movie channel and mm-hmm. so can you come up with a, a woman's name to work under and so i said okay penny nichols because cash markman was you know i was moonlighting to make extra money so cash and mark is the german currency mm-hmm. and man i'm a man so cash mark man yeah. um <laughs> and and then so i came up with penny nichols mm-hmm. And then uh, if a company had a lower budget, <clears throat> it was going to be a one-day wonder instead of a two- or three-day shoot. Um, I was kind of slumming it there, so I would uh, I would write under the name Bill Dollars, which <laughs> 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 sounded like a, a cheaper version of cash money. It certainly does. And so I, I, I had different, uh, different tiers that I would work under in the adult movie industry. Interesting. So, um, going through your IMDb history, which is over 800 titles long, uh, it's apparent that you were the like the adult parody guy. Um, just a short list here. You've done parodies of 
Desperate Housewives, American Idol, Forbidden Planet, The Three Musketeers, and Mission Impossible, High Fidelity, Charlie's Angels, Dude, Where's My Car, I Dream of Jeannie, Baywatch, LAPD Life on the Streets, Robin Hood, Enter the Dragon, West Side Story, When Harry Met Sally, The Dating Game, First Wives Club, Gilligan's Island, Singing in the Rain, Rebel Without a Cause, Night of the Living Dead, X-Files, Super Mario Brothers, McHale's Navy, <laughs> 10,000 Maniacs, Risky Business, I Love Lucy. We'll just we'll just leave it there because I'm only a third I, I way remember through. Some of, I remember some of my titles as you read this list, like Rebel Without a Cause was Rebel Without a Condom. <laughs> um, uh, Mission Impossible was Missionary Position Impossible. Amazing. It writes itself. Uh, Robin Hood was Throbin Hood, which I, I love Throbin that Hood. one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You uh you directed and your several is what uh personally uh the fir- one of the first ones I watched on I don't know Cinemax or Showtime or something one of the very first adult movies I ever saw when I was probably 12 13 years old was uh Babe Watch 7 or 8 I think which I believe <laughs> you directed so you 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 put something in a, a very young me that I'm sure Gene Roddenberry would very much appreciate <laughs> Yes. Now, see, and I thought it was better than Baywatch because Baywatch, you're you're turning it on to see the the hot chicks in bikinis, right? Well, on this on this and in my version, they take the bikinis off. Beautiful. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Come on, right? <laughs> We're giving you everything you want. Yeah, it was it was uh, at one time the most watched show. <laughs> but there was show another on one you liked. There there was uh, in your email to me. You said your favorite oh, title. Oh, my my what? favorite one personally probably uh, was your take on Mr. Holland's Opus, Mr. Holland's Orgy, which uh, I, yes. I I I don't even know how you make a, a porn parody of that movie, but <laughs> but bravo for doing so. Just bravo. <laughs> Thank you. I don't remember what it was about. But, uh, <laughs> Fair. I think I think in my movie he was because he was a music teacher mm-hmm. in right. Mr. Holland's Opus, Richard Dreyfuss, and so in mine he was a music teacher who liked to conduct, mm. and I think he was conducting the orgy or something. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Writes itself. There you go. Um, so how did you get into being the adult parody guy? Just from that phone ringing and then letting me do what I wanted to do. I'd come in and, uh, you know, sometimes I'd come in and, and pitch something serious. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there, there was one where, uh, let's see, they, uh, uh, Scott Justice over at uh, Sin City called and said, hey, we need something this week. Would you come over and write something? And I said, okay. And I lived 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So I got in the car and drove over there and I had a pad of paper next to me and I was just as when I'd stop at a light, I'd write down a couple titles. And I like titles a lot of times that uh, the parody titles are something else entirely. I mean, just make a fun twist on the movie title mm-hmm. or TV show title. But uh, but I knew he liked serious stuff. And, and so I was just writing down two word titles usually that started with the same letter. Mm-hmm. And I jotted down Forbidden Flesh as one of the titles. And so I got to his office and sat down and he says, so what do you got cash? And I said, well, how about a movie called Forbidden Flesh? He said, ooh, I like that. Mm-hmm. What's it about? I don't think anybody ever asked me what it was about before. Usually, <laughs> you just say the title, and they're they're falling on the floor laughing. Or if, or if it's a serious one, they say, "Well, that sounds kind of naughty." Yeah, go do that. Um, he actually asked me what it was about, and you know, I 
had just written it down five minutes earlier in the in the car but his phone rang and he got on the phone he said be, be right back and so he's talking on the phone and i'm sitting there thinking okay 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 what's it going to be um and i thought well um uh, what's what's forbidden flesh what's the most forbidden of all flesh um that'd be children and we're not going there no. i would write that if, no matter what you paid me and <laughs> and the censors and the censors wouldn't allow it because there are censors in that industry for broadcast um and so i thought okay what'd be the second most forbidden flesh family not incense because they won't let you do that either in that industry nor would i want to mm-hmm. uh but but so i thought okay a college kid hasn't seen his dad since school began several months earlier his dad's got money his dad's remarried he's never met his new stepmom mm-hmm. uh so he goes home on spring break to visit his father his father's mansion and um uh his new stepmom is his age <laughs> you know and hot and and uh, and she starts coming on to him after the old man goes to bed mm-hmm. and they get into uh fast and furious thing there <laughs> and uh and he falls for her for him it's not just sex he falls for her and uh uh but she's using him and we find that out because she she says you know uh i'm uh, your father's not leaving anything for you he's leaving everything to me mm-hmm. uh but i want to be with you but if i leave him to be with you he's going to take me out of his will what are we going to do dear 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 i i really want to be with you baby but i don't want to be broke you don't even have a job you're a student Mm -hmm. what are we going to do and she puts the seed in his brain let's get rid of dad and so he takes dad out on on the father's sailboat or uh, motorized sailboat and um, hits him in the head and father goes into the ocean and and he's going to then come back into port and call the police and say that the boom swung over and hit his father and his father went in the water and and he wasn't able to save him he jumped in the water but he couldn't find his father and long gone uh so he's selling into port and there's a bunch of police cars waiting to greet him and uh uniformed cops but there's a plainclothes lieutenant who comes up to the boat and he says so uh, where's your father oh oh it's terrible you fell off the boat back there why didn't you radio for help the coast guard i i tried but the radio wouldn't work oh yeah let's go check it he checks it radio's working fine he says your stepmother called us she said you've been coming on to her she said you've become obsessed with her she said that you you've been talking crazy that you might do something to your dad and that you were out with your dad on the boat today and she was really worried what did you do to your father you know he goes to jail mm-hmm. the stepmother gets all the money and doesn't have to deal with him or the dad so that so that all popped in my head in the time that i just told it to you mm-hmm. and scott hung up the phone and he said so what's forbidden flesh going to be about and i told him what i just told you and he said go home and write it so you got to be quick yeah. in this industry you got ideas got to come to you fast um but same thing with porn parodies i mean i'd go see a movie and and I, i'd come out and uh and say well that would be fun like gilligan's island um and i grew up watching that show and all this young boys watching the show love ginger or marianne or mm-hmm. both and and i thought well they've been on this island now for how many years and there's no women there except for lovey and ginger and marianne do you really think a, a young boy going through adolescence like Gilligan's going to uh, 
not uh, get smitten by these women and that uh, the professors, mm -hmm. I know he's an egghead, but he must certainly get a seven-year urge like Spock. <laughs> upon <nothing> far. <laughs> yeah. Like my character in the Star Trek sex trick movies was uh, half Vulcan, half horny, mm -hmm. and he had to have sex every seven years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly at some point, the professor is going to want something. Mm -hmm. Even the skipper. I mean, <laughs> likes to eat, but so what? And you Mr. Know? Howell even, you know, and if even, his dick and works. the women might yeah. get bored too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, so let's do a parody on Gilligan's Island where uh, Gilligan's out fishing in the lagoon and he catches a crate, which happened in every other episode, mm -hmm. right? And he pull, he reels the crate in and, and they all run and open it up hoping it's food or transistor radios or who knows. And mm -hmm. they open up the crate and it's sex toys. <laughs> Amazing. And suddenly, suddenly it's it's crazy time on Gilligan's Island. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some so, you know, tour. It, it's yeah. just, it's it's hard not to come up with these ideas. You mm -hmm. know, I, and they just, I think we probably all get ideas like this. Mm -hmm. You hear people's jokes about things. And, and uh, so I just was fortunate enough to where people were willing to pay me to sit home for a day and write it. <laughs> and, then, and then when my wife said, you're not making enough money as a writer, mm -hmm. and one day, um, uh, Katina, who owned one of the companies, it's amazing how many women run these companies. Kelly Holland ran Penthouse, Katina, can't remember her last name, ran this other company and, and so forth. Anyway, Katina called and, and said, Cash, help me, help me. Uh, that, that wonderful script you wrote for us, Breast Files, um, you know, we're supposed to start shooting tomorrow and the director got sick. Yeah. Would you please come out and direct it? And she says, I know you know how to direct. I can tell from the way you write the scripts. And I said, yeah, I went to AFI, you know. Mm -hmm. And and she said, oh, that's American Film Institute. And, and she said, would you please come out? And I said, hang on, Katina. And I looked over at my wife and I said, it's Katina. She wants to know if I'll come out the next couple of days and direct breast files. And, and my wife looks at me and she says, how much is she paying? <laughs> I said, Katina, how much are you paying? And I, she said, she'll pay me this amount. And my wife says, I get half and I'm going shopping at Macy's. <laughs> I said, all right, you have fun at Macy's. I'm going to go make a dirty movie. <laughs> Amazing. So did you ever feel like um, working in the adult industry would compromise um, your reputation within the inner machinations of Star Trek or just the general white writing world in general? Not, not initially, because back then, before the internet, uh, your resume was just what you wanted to put on it. Yeah. I mean, they could check it out and make sure that you actually did these things, but if you didn't want something on your resume, you just didn't put it on the resume. So I had a Cash Markman resume, I had a Mark Cushman resume, hmm. and so forth. Uh, I remember I went into a pitch meeting at uh, NextGen once uh, to Mike Piller after Gene retired. Uh, he got sick and he had to kind of hand over the reins uh, some Rick, to Rick Berman and Rick had Mike Pillar start producing. Um, so I went into pitch to Mike Pillar and I pitched, um, what was the one I pitched to him? It was uh, uh, Cupid, Cupid, mm -hmm. uh, Q hyphen PD, mm -hmm. Cupid or PRD. Uh, and, and um, uh, which got made, um, but they really changed it. It was barely my story, but it was my title. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, um, uh, so I went in and pitched to him, and before I, we even did the pitch, uh, oh, and by the way, Cupid was about the character Q who falls in love with 
I think Deanna Troy or maybe it was somebody else on the crew, a mortal woman. Mm -hmm. So he always looks down on humans, but he falls in love with one. I don't know if that's how it 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 was realized. Mm -hmm. They may have changed that. Yeah, that, that's it, where that, the idea that's about came right. From. And then Q turns Picard into Robin Hood, if I remember correctly. Ah, uh, of yeah, course, yeah. not in my story. He didn't. Not, not uh, for Robin anyway, Hood but, for but, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 my story would have been through Robin Hood. I think. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but what were we talking about? Uh, what were we talking about? Um, we were talking about uh, food, the industry. Oh, if your uh, reputation oh, was going to oh, get compromised. Yeah. 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 So Mike said to me at the beginning of during the schmoozing session before you start pitching, he said, "So Mark, what have you been up to?" And I said, "Well, I, I just did a sci-fi thing." Uh, they just uh, that Elliot Elliot Gould's in, mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of cool. And um, and he said, "Oh, oh, oh you, have you done any porn?" <laughs> <laughs> Interesting question. <laughs> they, they all they do about the sex trick movies. There are probably copies of them being passed around the office. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I I looked at him and I said, "B." <laughs> Mark Cushman do porn? I don't think so, because Mark Cushman didn't do porn. No, it's Cushman. And and, uh, and he kind of gave him a wink and and he smiled and, um, you know, I think he was fishing for an invitation to the set, but <laughs> you know, I, could, I I didn't I didn't feel comfortable getting into that conversation with him because uh, my agent would have strangled me too, you know. <laughs> so it, it, you know, you have to just uh, if they know, they know. If they don't know, you're not the one to tell them. Mm -hmm. Uh, later on, I, I worked for a producer named Jim Leonard, who did The Closure and a couple other CBS series. And he created a series called Skin, uh, which was done at Warner Brothers for Fox. And uh, it was on Monday nights. Uh, didn't last long because they scheduled it opposite Monday Night Football. But oh, uh, it was supposed to be the big hit of the season, and it was on the adult movie industry. And so Jim was staffing up, and a wonderful woman I used to write, uh, TV scripts with called Melody Fox uh, told him uh, I wouldn't have told him but she told him she said you know Mark's works in that industry too uh, <laughs> under the name of Cash Markman and he said really <laughs> and, and so he, he said Mark is this true and I said yes and he says I want you to come work on every episode as my technical consultant and all that and it was nice. like oh, okay so I'd go down to Warner Brothers every week and look at the script that they were developing uh, and give them notes and tell them what was real and what wasn't and what seemed silly and what didn't and all that. Uh, so in some ways, you know, I got work out of it, but in other ways, I'm sure there's many people who stopped hiring me once uh, the, the resumes got merged online. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just did three scripts for Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, which I first wrote for back in the early 2000s mm -hmm. was on for a few years on fox and now it's coming back uh into uh, the syndicated market uh, i think next season uh so i just did three scripts for them so i still get work you know it's it's nice. um but i but i'm sure there's people who can hire me i, I used to work for a bunch of uh, children's shows i can't I don't think they would hire me, but that's fine. I don't want to do any more children's shows. Fair, fair. So, oh, it looks like uh, Pat is joining us now. Uh, welcome, Pat. Um, Hello, Pat. So, uh, next question. Around 2013, you seem to stop working in the adult industry. What brought on that decision? So, as the industry progressed or degressed, mm -hmm. 
you didn't need the big scripts anymore. Mm-hmm. Anything goes now. So now they were saying we only need a 12-page script. And so it's a very flimsy story. There's not a lot of room for jokes. There's not a lot of room for story mm-hmm. or character. There's not really room for anything other than knock-knock pizza man. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know? And, and so I don't want to do that. So as these scripts started getting down in size, uh, I just lost interest in doing it. Plus the titles. You know, I came up with good titles, and now they'd say, okay, we need a movie called uh, Horny, Sassy Stewardesses Who Like to Get Spanked. Said, <laughs> which that's, your title? that's not great. That's too much information. <laughs> like, and which, but, which they want because they say it's all these words that will come up on a Google search. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. So whatever your fetish is, if you type in uh, lesbians getting spanked, it'll take you to that movie if those words are in the movie's title. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I wasn't able to come up with the fun titles. I wasn't able to write the fun stories. I wasn't able to do any of the things that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. So I said goodbye. If you ever come back around to where you want good material, give me a call. Uh, I've got plenty of other jobs I can be doing, including the books. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about the books. Um, so aside from doing books on Star Trek, You've also done books on Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Um, why don't you tell mm-hmm. us about how you got into those things? Well, after I did the first three Star Trek books, which is one book in three volumes mm-hmm. uh, on the original series, uh, I ran into Kevin Burns, who's the uh, shepherd of all the Irwin Allen properties mm-hmm. <clears throat> through his production company. And we got to talking, and he said, why don't you do a book about Irwin shows uh, starting with voice pharmacy. And then his next show was voice pharmacy. And then I'd love it if you would do a uh, time tunnel and land on the giants and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't commit to all of it, but I said, I'll do the first two because voice pharmacy and loss of space were got on the air before star Trek. Yep. So I've written a definitive book on the making of star Trek Mm-hmm. which is, you know, them creating this whole universe and, and the technology to do it. The first time they shot a, a, a giant miniature that was over 11 feet long in front of a blue screen or green screen and then put in stars that were moving and stuff like that. They had to figure out how to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was curious to see what Irwin had figured out to do before Star Trek. Interesting. Uh, even though he was only one year ahead of the loss of space and two years ahead with the voice around the sea. Mm-hmm. Also, it was because of those two shows that Star Trek got on the air. Um, because voice around the sea was winning its time slot and it was kicking NBC's butt. Lost in Space on CBS was winning its time slot and it was kicking NBC's butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, voice was on ABC. And so... NBC said, we got to get a sci-fi on here, too. Mm-hmm. And they had been playing around with making a couple Star Trek pilots, but they had been nervous about putting it on the air, withdrawing a big enough audience. It, it, are you really able to do it on a TV budget and deliver it once a week and not miss air dates and all that kind of stuff? So when they saw that Irwin was doing it successfully for ABC and CBS, that's when NBC made the decision to put Star Trek on. So for all these reasons, I, I actually was interested in doing these books on these other two shows. And I did. 
and they did very well. And then Kevin wanted me to do Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants, and I, I said no. Hmm. Um, because, it, I, you know, I don't want to just spend the rest of my life writing books about the same person, Erwin mm-hmm. uh, Allen. Uh, and uh, I, But I wanted to know how his mind worked. I wanted, because he had a reputation for being insane. <laughs> and And yet, you know, but he got these shows on, and they were big hits. Mm-hmm. A voyage lasted four years. Uh, Lost in Space lasted three, but it was renewed by CBS for a fourth season. Huh. Uh, the only reason it didn't have a fourth season is because CBS tried to cut the budget, and everyone said no. And so he pulled the plug on his own show. Uh, but I, but nobody knew any of this. And and also, I wanted to know why did his shows change? Why did Voyage start out serious? part sci-fi, part espionage, part adventure, and then it became, in the last couple years, Monster of the Week. Why did Lost Space start off very film noirish, very mm-hmm. scary? And then by the second season, when it went to color, it was like a sitcom with science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a sex parody, you know? So it, it was like, <laughs> what happened? Because he shot the pilots. You know, he had his vision of what he wanted to do. Why would he change the shows? Mm-hmm. And I found out the answers through all the internal memos and everything else. It was the networks. ABC said, um, Lou Hunter at ABC said, uh, uh, every time you do a monster story, the ratings spike. You're winning your time slot anyway. Mm-hmm. But the ratings go up even higher when you when the coming attraction, the previews show a monster. <laughs> Give us more monsters. Give us a monster every week for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. And and Irwin gave the network what they asked for. With Lost in Space, CBS was getting a lot of letters, angry mothers, saying this is in the family hour. This is on from seven thirty to eight thirty. My kids throw a fit if we don't let them watch it. But then they're having nightmares because mm-hmm. the robot's trying to kill the kids. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Smith is trying to kill the kids, you know. And and so CBS called her, went in and said, you can't do this in the family hour. You cannot put children in peril mm-hmm. like this. Hmm. An earthquake, maybe. But a crazed Dr. Smith programming the robot to kill them? <laughs> no. And they said, you got to get rid of them. You gotta, you're going to have to get rid of Dr. Smith and the robot. Hmm. And so Irwin back went back to the studio and he was all bummed out and he went to the dailies to see the footage that was shot the day before of the most recent episode and he saw Jonathan Smith working comedy into the delivery. The lines weren't funny, the situation wasn't funny, mm-hmm. but he was putting that twinkle in his eye and he was starting to milk it for a laugh. And Jonathan did this. We interviewed him and Jonathan did this because uh, he said, I knew I was going to get cut. There was no way that I could keep doing what they were having me do in the family hour. He knew it before Irwin knew it. And he said, I got to start working in some comedy or else I'm going to be off the show. Interesting. So Irwin's watching this in the dailies and he sees what Jonathan's doing and he goes and storms into Jonathan's dressing room Mm -hmm. and he walks up and he puts his finger right up to Jonathan's nose and he says, you Jonathan looks up at him and says, yes, Irwin. And Irwin says, I know what you're doing. Do more. And he turns <laughs> and he walks out. Interesting. And so so I found out why the shows changed. Nobody ever knew. Yeah. It wasn't on Wikipedia. It wasn't anywhere. You have to go to the show files. You have to look at the memos. Mm-hmm. So when Kevin Burns said, I'll give you access to all of Irwin's private papers, 
I said, I'll do it. Nice. And that was that. So having written books on uh, both Irwin Allen and Gene Roddenberry, respectively, do you see parallels between the two men, or do you see them as just contemporaries? Uh, just contemporaries. Um, <clears throat> Gene had more in common with Rod Serling. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Rod Serling wanted to uh, deliver messages. Mm -hmm. Mm. The difference between Gene and Rod was Rod was cynical. Most of the Twilight Zones that he wrote, and he wrote half of them, and he rewrote the other half. <laughs> These were nightmares he would have. Yeah. For six years, uh, a couple hundred of these things, they, they were nightmares. He'd get, he couldn't get back to sleep, and he'd get up and he'd write a Twilight Zone script. He really had uh, didn't believe in mankind. Mm. He believed that we were animals that were going to destroy ourselves. Hmm. Gene Roddenberry, on the other hand, was an optimist, and, and he wanted to do a show that said we're going to survive. So Gene Roddenberry wanted to present positive messages where Rod Serling was delivering pessimistic messages. But other than that, these two guys had total respect for each other. They were contemporaries, and and um, and they both were very into theme. Even when I pick, pitched a Sarak to Gene Roddenberry, he said, I love it, I love the idea. What, what are you trying to say with this? In other words, what's the theme? Mm -hmm. And I said, I want us to be able to look at senility through the eyes of a Vulcan. You use Vulcan to help us see ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's what you always did on Star Trek. Well, senility is something nobody ever wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. So we could examine senility by seeing Sarak go through it. And he said, done, go do it. Yeah. Um, so he, he was very much into story. So what's mm -hmm. the difference between them and Irwin Allen? Irwin Allen was in entertainment. Hmm. He went to the Saturday matinees when he was a kid, the cliffhangers, and, uh, and would sit in the theater all day watching the double feature plus a couple shorts and everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and he was a poor kid living in the Bronx. Hmm. And so he, he imagined being able to go to the places and do the things that these people were doing. He he saw life as an Indiana Jones movie, mm. you know, big boulders coming down the hill and you're running from them so you don't get crushed. That was his idea of entertainment, and that's what he wanted to present on his shows. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't care about. He was one of those guys who would say back then when we had Western Union, maybe we still do. He would say, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. <laughs> You know, if you want to write a script for me, think popcorn. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so he wanted it to be action, adventure, fun, mm -hmm. exciting, scary. Uh, he didn't care about delivering a message. Uh, but the networks were the ones who got him to switch away from serious stories that didn't have much of a message, but they were still serious to things that were more geared for the kids mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't want to get in trouble for airing scary stuff during family hour mm. huh wild um do you uh i'm guessing then you don't see a lot of parallels between lost in space and star trek as contemporaries more so between voice of obama sea and star trek because voice okay. of obama sea um you had a bridge mm -hmm. right you had a captain you had a first officer uh it was a combination of scientific adventure stories and science fiction more so science fiction than in the later color episodes, but um, exploration type stories. So it was exploring inner space, and Star Trek was exploring outer space. Oh, and Gene watched Voyage Above the Sea. Oh. He didn't like Lost in Space mm -hmm. because he felt the stories were too juvenile, even before it got silly. Yeah. Uh, 
because Gene went to NASA and would have them at JPL read every script to tell him what was possible. And he would say to them, I'm not asking that the stuff in my scripts be plausible, Mm -hmm. just that it be possible that Hmm. 200 years from now we could be doing this. Mm -hmm. And so he had scientists reading his scripts. Irwin didn't. Mm. So Gene didn't like Lost in Space because there were things that were scientifically wrong in the show. Uh, and then later, after it became silly, he really didn't like the comedy episodes. He, that's why Gene couldn't left the show, because Gene was not happy with episodes like I, Mud and The Trouble with Tribbles. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I don't want us being like Lost in Space, which at that point had been doing the comedy episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a falling out, and that's why Gene Croon left the show. Um, but um, all this is in the books as well, and, mm-hmm. and with the memos and everything. So, uh, But uh, Irwin wanted to make serious stuff. He just wanted it to be action, adventure, and didn't want to bog it down with scientific accuracy. Hmm. So that was that was the difference between these two. Uh, but Voyage to the Sea was kind of a dry run for Star Trek. And it proved to the networks you could get a big enough audience and you could do this on a budget and and schedule of a TV show. Uh, And it really was, uh, the the sea view was the Enterprise underwater. If you think about it in that respect. Mm -hmm. So Gene got a lot of stuff. Naturally, he based Star Trek on Forbidden Planet Mm -hmm. uh, movie. Uh, which could have been an episode of Star Trek if you watch it. And, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you uh, you wrote a porn parody of that Anal Planet, I believe. I think I did. Um, uh, somebody did an article recently, and I wrote to them. It was an article on Lucille Ball mm-hmm. uh, being the the, the uh, supporter of Star Trek, which I revealed all this information in my books. Mm-hmm. Now everybody talks about it. It all came from me. Oh, really? Um, you're that guy. From the memos. Nobody ever talked about Lucy having anything to do with Star Trek until my first These of the Voyage books came out. And you got the memos in there, and you see her standing up to the board of directors, and they're saying, don't do this show. Mm-hmm. Don't do the pilot. And she did the pilot. It was the most expensive pilot ever made. Mm-hmm. And NBC said, well, we can't take that. It's too cerebral, but we'll order another pilot. And her board of directors said, no, no, no. Uh, the first one almost killed us. You're going to do another pilot, and she, but she did. Mm-hmm. And then NBC orders uh, 16 episodes of the first year, which was 29, but they were ordered the first half. Mm-hmm. And the board of directors again tried to talk Lucy out of going forward with the project. They said, this will bankrupt Desi Lou. And it did. Mm-hmm. That's why halfway through the second season, she had to sell Desi Lou to Paramount Pictures. Um, and a Paramount came in and immediately cut the budget of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Where Bob Justman says in one of his memos, we're trying to do half a science fiction movie every week on the budget of a radio show. Wow. Uh, that's why the first two seasons are better than the third, because they didn't have as much money, and their shooting schedule was cut from seven days to five. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be as good but there's a lot of great episodes in the third season. Yeah. So, I mean, they were, Fred Freeberger is not a villain. This guy was really doing the impossible with a slashed budget, put in the death slot to try to kill the show mm-hmm. because NBC wanted the show off the air. The ratings were good. Yeah, they moved it they to like did, 10 p.m. on a Friday or something yeah. wild like that. They were fighting with Gene over the... Um, uh, boy, we got away from your question. I don't even remember oh, what your question was. I don't either. So they, 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 they were, hey, we go where we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were fighting with Gene over almost every episode. 
because he was doing stories that the network wasn't comfortable doing on an entertainment show in prime time. Mm-hmm. Shows about religion, so shows about overpopulation, shows about sexism, shows mm-hmm. about Vietnam, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, uh, brain transplant, whatever. It, it, it just, it, they, they were constantly fighting him, and they got tired of it. Well, for 50 years, everybody was saying Star Trek bombed on NBC. Mm-hmm. Really? Then why did it last three years, you know, uh, yeah. and 79 episodes? But that's all you ever heard. Nobody ever bothered to verify that story, mm-hmm. which was started by NBC when they canceled it. It's underperforming. We may not renew it. It's iffy. It's underperforming. Mm-hmm. So we license the Nielsen ratings for every single episode, and we publish them in, by these are the voice books. Mm-hmm. It's there. I still see people debating this on, on the internet. And it's like, hey, get the damn books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are licensed from A.C. Nielsen every single episode. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the first episode, The Man Trap, had an audience share of 47%. That's insane. That's like 47% mash numbers. of the TVs in America were tuned into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> During the first season, it was NBC's top-rated Thursday night show. It, it Usually came in second to um, what was this? Uh, to Bewitched, mm-hmm. uh, but it was beating that girl on ABC and my, and my three sons. Uh, so it, it would come in second to uh, Bewitched, uh, and but it was pulling in uh, a 35 percent audience share mm-hmm. on most weeks, and a lot of weeks it won its time slot, mm-hmm. and the ratings are all there to prove it. Yet NBC was talking about canceling the show at the end of the first year. You don't cancel your top-rated Thursday night show. Yeah, It was the story content. Mm-hmm. And protest letters started coming in, and the ratings were good. So they renewed it for a second season, but they moved it to Fridays at 8.30, which was a terrible time slot for a show that was mostly watched by uh, teenagers and uh, college kids. Mm-hmm. They're not home on Friday nights. They're at high school football games and whatever. So, um, so the ratings dropped, but it was still NBC's top-rated show of the night, and it was still beating ABC and coming in second to CBS, which was Gomer Pyle Mm -hmm. and the the CBS Friday Night Movie. Mm -hmm. So it was doing respectable business on that slot. NBC tried to cancel it again, and they got a a million protest letters and petitions. Mm So they renewed it, and they put it on Friday nights from 10 to 11, which was the death slot. Mm-hmm. It was the worst time period of the week. And the first episode of the third season, the much maligned Spock's brain, <laughs> yep. killed the competition. It beat Judd for the defense on ABC, which had just won an Emmy as the best dramatic series on television for the previous year. Mm-hmm. And it beat the two-hour premiere of Hawaii Five-0, which would have a 12-year run on CBS. Good God, I don't know. It that. kicked their butt. Yeah. And 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 the, and the show did fairly well uh, for the next several weeks, mm-hmm. but gradually the numbers came down uh, because it was a terrible, terrible time slot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people could see that the budget had been cut. They could see that something was different. Yeah. And it just wasn't quite as good. Uh, but again, the young people were out. They weren't home at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I remember I, when I would go to high school football games. I, I was in junior high, mm-hmm. but my sisters were in high school, and we'd go to the football games, and we'd be driving home. And it was like I'd see the 
clock getting up towards 10. They're like, oh no, hurry, drive faster, Dad. <laughs> we're going to miss Star Trek. It was a terrible time slot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would get home usually 15 minutes into the episode. Mm, you know, So it was a rough time slot to have that show in. So, of course, the ratings came down. But it was still consistently second place in its time period for that year. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, they got rid of it not because of the ratings. They got rid of it because of the fights with Chief Roddenberry. And mm-hmm. God bless him for fighting. Mm-hmm. Because if he had been Irwin Allen, he would have done what they asked. Yeah. Just and it would have been silly. Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So it was an ideological move by a, like a, a studio executive pretty much that, that killed, or a non-ideological yeah. move perhaps. Yeah. Uh, well, circling back around to, to Lucy, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> she believed in the show. Mm-hmm. Herb Solo did a knife job on her when he published his memoir with Bob Justman and uh, and Bob told me he was really unhappy because Herb was making claims in his book that Lucy didn't know what Star Trek was about. She thought it was going to be a show about USO tours traveling the Pacific. Uh, she was in the meetings. She read the script. She was on the set when they were shooting. And she knew what this show was. She was trying to find a show that could last as long in reruns as I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. And Herb Solo brought her Star Trek. He got the proposal from Gene Roddenberry and he brought it to her and she liked it. And so when the board of directors was trying to say, let's not do it, it's gonna kill us. We're not a big enough studio with deep enough pockets. Mm -hmm. She went ahead anyway, because she said, this show's gonna rerun Mm -hmm. for years. And she was right. She was completely 30 years from now, you turn on your TV, you're gonna see I Love Lucy and you're gonna see Star Trek. And she was right, 100%. But the board of directors was right, too. They did, they did not have the funding yeah. to survive. If your audience doesn't know, um, the networks only put up half the money. Hmm. So if the episode's costing 200 foul, the network puts up 100,000. Okay. And that's what it was back then, okay? Now it's now it's like 4 million. Yeah. But but back then it was 100,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and the studio would put up the other 100. So you're doing 29 episodes a season back then. So you're you're what, what's 29 times 100 now? That that's the deficit financing, mm-hmm. right? And and a second year you're going into further deficit financing. You're not going to recoup your deficit financing until you get into syndication, right? Right. And and if it had been a bigger studio, Designate was a busy studio. Mm-hmm. Andy Griffith show, Dick Van Dyke show, Danny Thomas show, Gilmer yep. Pyle. On and on, but those were cheap half-hour sitcoms. Mm-hmm. To do something as ambitious as Star Trek was was a was a big gamble, and they just didn't have the funding to last for five years. Mm-hmm. And that's what they wanted is five years. Uh, when uh, they came up with the five-year mission, mm-hmm. uh, both Gene and John D. F. Black told me this, and they wrote the opening "Space: The Final Frontier" mm-hmm. uh, together. Uh, they picked five years because they were hoping for five years on the network. Mm-hmm. to have a really solid syndication package. And they kept cut short after three, but fortunately you made more episodes back then, so they still got 80 episodes if you count the pilot. And mm-hmm. uh, so it feels like it was on for more than three years. Yeah, I mean, now we make, what, 12 episodes a season? So uh, it's, 10 of Star yeah. Trek now, yeah. Yeah, That's so you gotta down. be on for uh, you gotta be on for eight years to do what the original Star Trek did in three. Right. Mm-hmm. And no Star Trek is, now is gonna go eight years. Like no. they'll be Not lucky to late. go five. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think yeah. Discovery's ending. That's on its fifth, fifth. season. Yep, yeah, correct. Yeah, so that's fine. Yeah, most streaming shows usually have a lifespan of about three years, um, but they're only making 30, 40 episodes in that amount of time. Yeah. Uh, so the, so you're not going to have what the original Star Trek has. I mean, the one that's got the most episodes is Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fact, yeah, like T, uh, TOS, like the original series, is, uh, it continued has such a, like a impact, uh, cultural impact still. Just instantly recognizable, just... Yeah, and, you know, I think in large part that is because of the messaging. Yeah. You know, you have, like, great moral tales. Of course, you do have your uh, trouble with tribbles and your, yeah. your silly kind of frivolous episodes. But, yeah. you know, those all those themes, like, still hold true. And yeah. Gene Roddenberry mm-hmm. did have a vision of the future that is, like, still prescient in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But even trouble with tribbles. I mean, David Gerald told me that um, he wrote it, and he told me that, uh, he wanted to write about overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Interesting, you know. Okay, and I and and he way. was trying he was trying to make a statement about um, population control, huh. overbreeding. The more you feed them, the more they breed. What are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and and uh, but NBC wasn't going to let you make that statement overtly, mm-hmm. so he made it um, with the triples. Mm-hmm. So even the even the ones that feel fluffy have a strong message to oh, them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always kind of read it as like invasive species. You know how you get in like uh, certain certain animals d- introduced into different areas and they overpopulate. Oh yeah, no natural predators. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that too. But you know that's an overpopulation of a species. Yeah, still, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're in the safe environment of the enterprise. They don't have any predators, mm-hmm. and so they just keep breeding, breeding, breeding. Mm-hmm. So okay. he's, he's it's, it was making some interesting statements while getting laughs at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Although in the follow-up episode to Trouble with Tribbles on the animated series, which I think was written by the same fella, yeah. uh, yes. he does introduce a natural predator to the Tribbles yeah. that ends yeah, up eating all of them. Yeah. Which, fun little episode. Yeah. yeah. Until they get too big. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then it runs away. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm honestly like a big fan of the animated series. Despite its faults, it like still has kind of the same energy of uh, TOS, so you know, I, I do love it. I have a special place uh, in my it, heart for it. Yeah, I write about it in the fourth book, which is Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume One. Mm-hmm. And, and we also write about his pilots from that period, which were very Star Trekky in many ways because he was being asked to create another Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So with Genesis Two and everything else, he was bringing a lot of the Star Trek terminology and even cast members over because that's, that's what the networks were asking him to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the second one covers the next couple pilots and uh, the aborted Phase 2 series, mm-hmm. which segues beautifully into Volume 3 because the premiere episode of Phase 2 in By Image was the script that they ended up using for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm, and then start and, and volume three covers the making of Star Trek motion picture. Uh, so again, you see all the memos, you get all the inside stories and, and all that. But I, I really give, um, give good coverage to the animated series because I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the problem with it was the limitations of the animation back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the fact that the cast were being recorded separately. Mm. Uh, they did the first couple episodes together and, those sound terrific. Mm-hmm. After that, Shatner's in Chicago doing theater, Nimoy's somewhere else. So they were recording all their parts to get separately and they were being edited together. Hmm. So sometimes 
it doesn't sound like the inflection of voice doesn't sound right because mm. because Kirk will have a certain inflection and then Scotty's inflection isn't really reacting <laughs> to Kirk's inflection because Scotty wasn't there when Kirk recorded his part and Kirk wasn't there when Scotty recorded his part. Right. So those are the two flaws of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, and I asked Gene, I said, why were you doing things like having them swim underwater and <laughs> things like that? He said, because those are the things we couldn't do mm. oh, on the live show. That makes sense. So if I've got animation, uh, I might as well utilize it and have a giant cyclops and do things like that. Uh, so it feels like they're going a little into comic book stuff there, but they're really not with the yeah, story. Yeah. They're just doing things like having the crew members shrink, and they're doing the mm-hmm. incredible shrinking man yeah. on Star Trek. They're doing things they could not have done if it was a filmed series. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was picking those type of stories to do. Yeah, I never thought about it before, but there's a lot more spacewalks in the animated series than they ever have in the original yeah. series. Yeah. I can't think of a single spacewalk in the original series, really. And, and the alien designs I don't think there was one. Yeah. yeah, we saw we saw them get in spacesuits a couple times, like in the Tholian web, when they had to beam over to the starship mm. that had no atmosphere in it, yeah. so they're all wearing their spacesuits. Mm-hmm. But no, you never saw them doing a walk because they didn't have the money to yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. So when he got a chance. Picture. Yeah, when he got a chance a few years later to do the animated series, which at first he didn't want to do, mm-hmm. uh, NBC came to Paramount and wanted the series back. Interesting. They'd been trying to get the series back for three years at that point. Because it was doing super well in, in syndication. 60, yeah. They canceled in 69, and two year, and a year and a half later in 71, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was January or February, NBC contacts NBC uh, Paramount, it says, can we have Star Trek back for prime time? Huh. With, with the original cast, ours, everything. And and Paramount said no. <laughs> Bummer. Paramount was making, so, again, these are all in those books too, the, the 1970s books. Mm-hmm. Paramount was making so much money on the reruns that they were afraid if they put the show back in production, the bottom would fall out on the rerun package, hmm. which is silly. Hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, they would feed into each other. They, mm-hmm. they wouldn't diminish. People were addicted to Star Trek. They were watching it five times a night. They would have loved to have watched it six times, uh, five times a week. Right. They would have loved to have watched it six times a week with a new episode once a week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Paramount was being silly, but but there's better words for it. I'm just being yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and so see, NBC came back in 72. Can we have it back? No. They came back in 73. Can we have it back? They said, uh, we'll give it to you as a half-hour animated show. <laughs> and that's how the animated show got launched. Not that anybody thought that was a better idea. Mm-hmm. It's just that Paramount would not allow more hour-long episodes to get made at that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 77 when they finally said, okay, let's do it. And they had 16 episodes written. They had the two-hour pilot episode written. They had the sets built. They had the cast under contract, costumes ready. They were two weeks away from filming the kickoff episode, and Paramount pulled the plug on it and said, "Hey, you know the Star Wars movie is doing great business. Let's mm. let's take that script and make it a movie instead." <laughs> so, Paramount is the one who kept us from having Star Trek back over and over and over again. We could have had the original show with the original cast back. Nimoy wasn't available to do Phase 2 because mm-hmm. he was on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought he was rejecting Star Trek and rejecting Spock because he did that book, I Am Not Spock. Mm-hmm. But 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 he he was willing to do the show. 
he had a scheduling conflict and um and i interviewed him about all this too and and uh and he said i will appear in some episodes if you want me to but i can't commit to doing the show because you're you want to start shooting in in april and i'm on stage in broadway through september hmm. you know so there, there was no way he could do it uh so he was the only one who was not going to be coming back although he would appear in a couple episodes mm-hmm. And I've got all 16 of those scripts that were written uh, and the two-hour in thy image. And it would have been a really wonderful thing to have had back. Instead, we had to wait two to three years for each movie. Yeah. You know, so it's... um, uh, And I I just don't think Next Generation's as good, although the Borg episodes are pretty good. But Mm -hmm. um, there's no conflict between the characters. Uh, They all like each other. And that's not good drama. Shakespeare could not have written a good Next Generation. Mm-hmm. They got some good episodes done. Yeah. Uh, but 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 uh, but it was a difficult show to write for. All the writers felt that way. Mm-hmm. All the writers grew up on the original. Mm-hmm. And the feeling around Next Generation was, how can you write good, compelling drama if none of the recurring characters have any conflict with each other? They all like each other. Yeah. You need, you need that Spock McCoy uh, 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 bitter bickering going on. Yeah. And you need that swaggering Kirk. Yeah. Who McCoy comes onto the bridge and says, Jim, you're, you shouldn't be doing this. And he, he says, you know, not on my bridge, doctor. You know, <laughs> get off my bridge. You, you would never see Picard snap no, anybody that way. He doesn't have that swag. Definitely not. No, and that's what makes compelling drama. Mm-hmm. So Star Trek Next Generation was pretty, yeah, and and it has some great intellectual sci-fi concepts, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it was talking heads, and yeah. uh, you know you never saw Picard get into a fight, fist fight with a lizard creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it's just not as good. And, and so I would say to anybody listening that well, but it's older show and the effects aren't that good compared to CGI, these effects were done the old-fashioned way with a 12-foot minotaur. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels real when it goes by the camera, okay. if you're watching the originals and not yeah. the CGI so, versions. Yeah, I'm you, one you of, can touch it. Yeah, I'm one of the few people that believes that uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture has the best special effects out of any Star Trek film, and any Star Trek property in general. I agree. Like, Phil, mm-hmm. Phil Tippett's work on there, um, mm-hmm. incredible. Oh, yeah. uh, and what's his uh, what's his face? Who also did uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey? Um, uh, Doug jo- Doug jo- Trumbull or something? I think. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. also incredible, incredible work on mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it all looks yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it, and, it and, Gene, and Gene yeah. got a bad rap over that movie. He they took the franchise away from him after Star Trek: Motion Picture mm-hmm. because the reviews were mixed, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and this this folklore again that it was trashed by the critics not true it was trashed by some of the critics mm-hmm. uh the majority of the critics thought it was great they were comparing it to 2001 space odyssey as it should be uh i i published the reviews in the book mm-hmm. uh, in volume three of the 70s series and uh samplings of over 100 reviews from mm-hmm. renowned critics and newspapers and and everything and for every bad review there's two or three good ones yeah. Uh, so it, again, it's folklore. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what that's my mission with these books, is to get the truth out there. Um, it went over budget, and they blamed Robert. Roddenberry had nothing to do with that. 
They were the ones who brought in Robert Weiss. They were the ones who, Robert Weiss decided they had to rebuild the ship because they didn't want to use the ship they had built for Phase 2, which looked too much like the original Enterprise, so we have to rebuild it. I want all new costumes. You're using costumes that look too much like the original show. I want unisex costumes. I want all this stuff. He added so much to the budget. Then Paramount hired a special effects house that totally dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. And they wasted $4 million on effects that they never used. Then they Wild. brought in uh, um, the guy you just mentioned, John. Uh, uh, Doug Trumbull, Trumbull, Trumbull. Trumbull, Trumbull, Trumbull yeah. Doug Trumbull. They brought him in, and, and he had to redo everything. And uh, and they, they opened the film with wet prints because they barely got everything done in time. They didn't wow. get to have a sneak preview, which mm-hmm. they would have tightened the editing if they had. Mm-hmm. They didn't have time. And so it was Paramount that screwed everything up. As usual, you, you can tell if anybody at Paramount's listening, I'll never work for <laughs> Paramount again. Yeah. But, but they kept us from getting the original show back. Mm-hmm. They they damaged the first movie. Uh, and and on and on. Then they took the franchise away from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And if I ever write another one of these books, I've got the memos already uh, for Rathicon and so forth. And you see Gene fighting with um, who's the guy? Har- Harv Bennett, who took uh, over. Yeah, Harv Har- Bennett. You see yeah. him fighting with them to mm-hmm. try to keep it Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. I, he did not want Spock to get killed. Yeah. He fought on that, and and. He, he did not want the Enterprise to get blown up in, mm-hmm. in Star Trek Three. He fought against that, but he had no power. He was an advisor at this point, and they weren't doing anything he said. He was the creator, and yet he had no say in the making of those movies. Uh, Wrath of Khan's a great movie, yeah, you know. Uh, Voyage Home is a great movie, but yeah, love but, Voyage Home. But they weren't listening to Gene anymore. Mm-hmm. So those are the stories you can read about. But anyway. Uh, uh, next generation uh, at that point Gene told me that he, he said uh, if we're going to survive and this is 100 years after the first Star Trek if we're going to survive 300 years in the future mm-hmm. uh, mankind has to get over their petty differences mm-hmm. absolutely the day I pitched um, Sarek uh, that was not the first pitch I was going to make mm-hmm. it was like in my back pocket and and uh, I walked in I said I got a story I worked out that's about uh, greed. Oh, we don't have greed anymore. <laughs> okay, I got a story about lust. We don't have lust anymore. Well, no, lust, he probably would have been okay with. It's price envy. Yeah, yeah. Envy. We don't have envy anymore. What? And that's when he gave me the speech, and he told me, if we're going to survive 300 years, we got to get rid of these mm-hmm. emotions. Lust is okay, but but are the others? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> and do, do you have anything else? And I said, well, what about a story about a Vulcan going through senility? And and he kind of looked up and said, well, what about it? What do you think? We just started talking. Uh, but it, it, a hard show to write for. That's why I never pursued getting more jobs there. They would call me in for pitch meetings, but uh, as far as I was finding it, buy the idea and, and let somebody else write it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because... Um, I, I just thought that's going to be a tough show to write for because everybody's so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Until the Borg. Yeah. And then it was like, all right, now you're doing something here. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That was uh, one of the first like things that they did in the show where they weren't just kind of, you know, doing something that TOS did, but maybe not quite as well. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, and I mean, yeah, Q was just kind of Trelane, 
Um, yeah, they just didn't really oh, have completely. anything unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Gosh, so I'm, I'm going to be honest. I felt incredibly unprepared for this interview once we got into it <laughs> because I thought you were just the Star Trek porn guy. And uh, yeah. you, you just have an incredible tome of knowledge. So uh, if it's okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read your books. Would you be willing to come back on for an interview just about that? Sure. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. This has been fun, guys. I, you know, I've had more fun today than maybe any other interview I've done. Oh. Because you set you set the tone with that stupid song. You played <laughs> <in the beginning. laughs> See, I told you it's awesome, Pat. It's, it's awesome. It's <laughs> it sets the tone, man. And so I thought, man, we can just we can just have fun here. We oh, can yeah. take the gloves off. Absolutely. Uh, and, and and you guys also know the shows, mm -hmm. you know, so and so it's been a really delightful exchange. Yeah. And um, next time I'll make sure the uh, the landline's more charged up so we don't have to pause. Yeah, that was awesome. the technical difficulty we had before. Yeah. Mark's phone was dying. <laughs> um, so we uh, we'll, we'll do it again. And yeah. um, uh, but look at those books. You don't have to read every chapter. But I, I kind of want to read every chapter. I was adding them into my. Um, yeah, your Mark. Amazon queue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I, was, I was putting it. I'm like, I'm going to read all of them. Well, they're they're all available on Kindle. Mm -hmm. They're all yes. available in print, mm -hmm. and the first one's even available as an audio book. Uh, Vic Mignogna, who we were talking about earlier, did the audio book, and he oh, reads wow. my words. Nice. So he re he reads all everything I write in the book, mm -hmm. but for all the people I interviewed and all the memos that are in there. We had other people read those parts, and so we had Dorothy Fontanic, Fontana come out and recreate what? her quotes oh, and wow. read her memos. That's amazing. And, and John D.F. Black and, and mm -hmm. so forth. Leonard Nimoy was going to come out, but he got sick. Oh. So we had his son, Adam Nimoy, come out and do all of Leonard's mm -hmm. quotes. That's and the letters awesome. he would write to Gene Roddenberry saying, I love this episode we're about to shoot, or, or I don't like what you're trying to do here with Spock. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had Adam Nimoy, who sounds just like his dad, he does. Mm -hmm. and we have um, Rod Roddenberry do his 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 father's parts. And uh, so uh, Michelle was too sick to come out, so mm -hmm. we had her sister come out. Wow. So we either got the actual people, or we got somebody who was connected to them to come out. And we have eighty different speaking parts in the audio book. So this thing is thirteen hours long. Good God. I think I might it's actually got get the books now. Yeah. It's got music. It's got, you won't get the pictures with the audio, but that's yeah. the only thing you don't get. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you won't see the hundreds of pictures that were filmed behind the scenes on the set. Mm. So it, the books are worth it for that, if nothing else. But Vic did this amazing job. It's 13 hours. It's a 600-page book mm -hmm. and a 13-hour audio book. And you got 80 speaking parts and music scores. So it's like sitting wow. back and listening to a radio play mm -hmm. that takes you through the creation and the making of the first season of Star Trek. So I highly recommend that. You can get that online uh, at Amazon on Audible. Yeah, and I see something like, it's, like know, it's probably 20 bucks or something. Yeah. What's the for name 13 about, hours. You want to drop the name again for everyone at home? Uh, well, it's the same as the book. It's These Are the Voyages. Mm -hmm. Star Trek, the original series, season one, by Mark Cushman, and uh, and Vic Mignogna is the guy that produced it, and he does um, 
Uh, William Shatner wasn't available to come out, so Vic does William Shatner, okay. as well as reading reading all my words. And Vic does a great William Shatner, yeah. <laughs> as, you can, <laughs> as you can well imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it's really a great job. If anybody's taking a cross-country drive and you want an audiobook to take with you, get this thing on Audible, and, and you got 13 hours of a very entertaining presentation that tells this story. Why does it take 13 hours to tell the story of the first season? Well, it's the two pilots. It's creating the show. It's selling the show. Mm-hmm. But the, the story behind every episode is so dramatic. Uh, what they had to deal with and uh, and all that, so it's um, it's it's uh, it's really good. I don't know if the ratings are in there. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe Vic reads the ratings. If not, they're in the printed book for all those episodes from Nielsen and Arbitron. Um, and then you got the other two volumes for season two and three. Uh, so check those out if you want to read about the animated show. Then go ahead and get uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the nineteen seventies and mm-hmm. read on. Uh, but uh, but that first series because here's the fun guys mm-hmm. you read a chapter and then you watch the episode yeah which means it'll be a year before we talk again yes <laughs> yes that's uh, it, it might be a while we might have to uh, just do an interview per book yeah uh, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm actually yeah really excited I got I get it all in my account Thanks. yeah I'm gonna get that yeah and well this, uh, gives, this gives you time to find those other four uh, sex track movies uh, exactly. that have eluded you there you go there you go <laughs> so we'll have we'll have fresh material there too Absolutely. So I've got one more question for you here. Sure. So you won a Saturn Award uh, for uh, Star Trek: the, These Are the Voyages TOS uh, Season One. Where do you keep that in your house? How do you know about this? Uh, what the Saturn Award, or you know where it is? No, no. I'm. I'm I, I. I was just generally wondering because oh, whenever anyone wins know. an award, like especially a prestigious award, I'm like, I wonder if they put it in their bathroom. Like <laughs> that's where it is. There you go. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's behind the toilet. Oh, so when it. you're standing there taking a whiz, you can look at my awards. There's a Saturn Award. There's a um, an AVN Award. There's a. Uh, there's about four awards up there on a shelf. Oh wow! Uh, and 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 as you're taking a leak, you can you can look at these awards. I love that. I love that. But just <laughs> I just, just as I hope. I shelf there. What are you going to put on a shelf behind the toilet? Toilet paper? No. No. I, it was per. It was the perfect height. These things fit. And and it, you put them anywhere else in the house, it looks like you're showing off. Oh yeah. You Very put true. them there, it looks like you got some humor about yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the way, like, oh, I know. yeah. <laughs> by the way, take a look at the Saturn Award. Mm-hmm. Google it. Uh, well, there's a picture of me holding it, but look at any Saturn Award, and um, it's the most phallic shape of all <laughs> these awards. The one, the one from the X-rated Critics Association is really classy looking. Mm-hmm. The one mm-hmm. from ABN is really classy looking. The the one from Saturn Award, no offense Saturn Award, but I'm just saying it it looks like a you know what? It looks like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> At least it does to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, does but I was very honored. I, I was honored to get it. They're really nice people down there, mm-hmm. and I, I was surprised because they usually only give awards to TV shows and movies, and so forth. And the fact that they uh, they gave me a special achievement award for those uh, first three books was like, well, man, that's so cool. Yeah. And um, 
So I, 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 I think the world of them, and I'm sorry, guys, that I said it looked like what I think it looks like. No, oh. no, that's, that, no. that's all we want on this that's podcast. Not, that's, always, yeah. that's all we talk about when no, you're not here. That's, yeah. that's perfect. <laughs> I've, never, I've never said that anywhere else, so will I. Yeah. But I figured you guys have probably said it anyway. So oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, Patrick, Britton, it's been a delight. And, yeah. Uh, Great you having want to do you. it again someday. You just let me know. Absolutely, yeah, you've, been, um, you've been great. Honestly. Yeah, you've this, been this you've is, been a wonderful is, guest. Thank you so much. All right. Um, is there a, a song? Are you going to go out on a song too? Uh, yeah, we do have a, a closing song. But uh, before that, do you have anything, uh, any upcoming projects or current projects that you'd like to tell us about or plug? Uh, well, I, I just did these Beyond Belief scripts, and I don't know when it's going to start airing in the United States. But mm-hmm. uh, one of them, nine one one, is the name of the episode, and it's really good i just got an email from the producer the other day i said this is gonna be the best one of the season um really gripping mm-hmm. uh spooky uh thing so hopefully it, the show's already airing in europe oh, wow. uh, i don't know what the i don't know what the delay is here maybe they're just trying to get enough episodes banked mm-hmm. before they they go to the networks and or maybe they're going to syndicate it mm-hmm. so it's already on the air in europe but it's it, it, uh, not yet here hmm. so so those those are kind of cool and of course, I'm working on a couple more books, but I'm, I never talk about a book until it's done, mm, fair, because fair. I have a bad tendency of, of uh, getting halfway into a book and losing interest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have that with reading. My publisher's all the same. You know, it's been two years mm-hmm. since we did your Moody Blues book. Where, where, where's the next Star Trek book? Where's the next whatever? And I said, well, I'm working on a couple, but um, you know, when when the next one comes out, there'll probably be two or three books right next to it because <laughs> I've got three different books that are all part done right now. Mm-hmm. Nice. So we'll see. Yeah, and uh, where can it won't people? Be, it won't be. It, it will not be Land of the Giants. Okay. Fair, fair, <laughs> fair. Um, where can people follow you online or uh, find your, your work? Uh, well, I have a website, markcrispin.com. Uh, uh, my main publisher, the one that's done most of my books, is Jacobs Brown Media Group uh, dot com and Jacobs Brown Media Group. If you go to their web store, there the books come autographed, and there's that great Paul Coyle book there that comes autographed by Paul, mm-hmm. and for no extra money, it's just regular, the same price Amazon charges, but you get a signed oh, book. Damn. Come on, man, yeah, start getting those Christmas presents ready. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, so those would be the two places. Yes. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place for us to leave it. Yeah. Thanks for hanging with us, Soyagers, and thank you so much, uh, Mark Cushman, for joining us for such a wonderful interview. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun, guys. You have a good time. You too. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, I think it's time for us to warp away. Well, there we go. Yeah. Hang dong. Bong. And shocker. I got the wrong song. There we go. Soy, 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 so
Pat is taking a piss. Big yellow, big yellow, big yellow piss. Hey, Pat, you should drink some more water. Your piss is way too yellow. Pat, Pat, you're dehydrated. I think you should gee. Okay, I'm not. I'm not doing this song anymore. This sucks. This really sucks. Fucking sucks, man. Huh. Fucking sucks, my song. I'm so stupid. <laughs> I'm, so stu- I'm so fucking stupid. <laughs>